This week when a drug deal goes bad, the informant gets horribly murdered and Merce's partner gets severely wounded in a shootout with three armed traffickers. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Alrighty, gang, crime fighters, welcome back to Game of Crimes. We Ooh. have had another, and this was a, his. This was historical, Steve. We've already made history. We did our first two-parter. Yes, sir. You can be the leader. You can be a follower. We're the leaders. That's right. Lead either lead, follow, or get the hell out of the way. Absolutely. That's one of those sayings. Get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on, because here we go. Here we go, right. So, hey, my name is Morgan Wright. I'm here literally with my partner in crime. I think it's Steve Murphy this time. You think it is. That's right. Thank you for joining us. And I'm telling you, Steve, though, that we we got more comments about Lou's pictures. Apparently, we're not eye candy enough. So <laughs> That's why we Lou, do audio, not video. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said you had a face made for TV. I tried putting a TV over your face, and you called uh, the cops. Yeah, well, that's what happens. <laughs> bully. You freaking yeah. bully you. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, Lou, though, but that was, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, just like when I dropped part two and I said some more badassery, I mean, if people only realize the stones it took, you know, just the, the, it's not that you're not scared. You just learn to manage, you know, it, you mm -hmm. know, and you just go through with this stuff. But some of the stuff, the operations they ran for that long and all the arrests they made, that's just, it's, it's, it's mind boggling that you figure a few people can, can do that. Well, you know, um, after that first part dropped the other day, I started getting phone calls from guys I haven't spoken to in years. <laughs> and they're asking me, hey, do you, do you know Lou Velozzi? And I said, sure. We did a podcast with him a couple years ago. Uh, you know, do, we did but do you know Lou Velozzi? <laughs> and they started telling me stories that I wish we had known. <laughs> All right. So if you guys are listening in, and I'm going to give you, if you know anything about Jeff Moore with DEA, you got to call us. Get Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com. We got to hear these stories. But hey, Steve, well, hey, you know, before we get started, just some quick housekeeping, folks. Uh, keep those five-star reviews coming out. They do help a lot. It's magic. It's like Disney. We don't understand how the Magic Kingdom works. We just know that it does. So keep doing that. Head on over to our website at GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We are improving that every week. So we'll be adding merch. Uh, Steve and I were just looking at T-shirt designs today. We'll be talking about live events. Join our mailing list. Uh, also, uh, as I sprung it on Steve last week, Patreon will be coming end of July. Uh, enough said about that. When we launch it, we'll tell you more. But if you feel like just supporting it just for the cause, just for the heck of it, head on over to paypal.com and use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com, or go to paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever makes it easier for you to support the show and have us bring you more exciting. Last week, I coined Vantabulous. This time, I'm going to talk incredulous. Well, actually, incredulous is not, you know, a word, but, you know, incredible, incredibleistic, con incredibleistic content. That's the word for this week. Oh, my gosh. Well, Morgan's not a real person, so we just kind of make his crap up as we go here. We make, hey, look, um, <laughs> I, I believe in the um, MSU methodology, methodology, make shit up. Just, you know, just roll with it. <laughs> go with it. All right. Hey, and folks, uh, real quickly, a disclaimer. This is a show about crime. 
we talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. So if this isn't your bag, baby, that's okay. Uh, there might be another podcast, maybe Mr. Rogers, but in this one, we talk about a lot of serious stuff, right? Because we take the story seriously. But not ourselves. That's right. And Steve, I want to make a point about that too, real quickly. One of the reasons we decided to do a not-so-serious podcast, we wanted to have a little fun, is in your career and in my career, we've seen enough shit to last a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Don't need to see another dead body. Mm -hmm. I don't need to work another homicide. I don't need to see another 18-month-old baby with a bullet hole in her head because her father killed the mother, killed the baby, and then killed himself, you Mm -hmm. know? Or a guy getting run over eight times with his own car left for dead in the field. You know, after you do enough of that stuff, it's like, man, life is too short. Let's have some fun. Right. Life is too damn serious. You know, and, and everything you read, you know, I used to tell my people that work for me in, in DEA, I haven't read, I've read a shitload of rules, but I've never read a rule that says you can't have fun in life. You know, so we, we do talk about serious topics here and we get serious when we need to. But the rest of the time, let's have some fun because we found out our listeners love to have fun. Yes, they do. And before we get into that fun called Game of Crimes, guess what time it is, Murph? I bet it's time for <laughs> Small, Small Town, Town Police, Police Blotters. The crowd of one claps. Guess what I got for you this week, Steve? <laughs> oh, Lord. I don't know, but I see that shit-eating grin on your face. I oh, don't boy. know what to expect. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this one actually, so we've got some more people donating, or, or sent, donating, sending us stuff. This one comes from Emily Makes Coffee. That's her Twitter name. It's Emily Makes Cough, the number one, C-O-F-F, the number one. So she goes, she sent us this on Twitter. She said, here's one for the blotter. So this happened in Polk County. I believe that's going to be Georgia or Alabama, somewhere down south. Well, and there's so, a Florida, Polk County, Florida also. Could be Florida. It's got to be Florida, man. Florida, man. <laughs> weird shit happening in Florida. Okay. This called an ATL, an attempt to locate. Uh, Steve, the Pol- Polk County scanner put out an attempt to locate on a Kia, pulling a tra- trailer with a flat tire, female sitting in the back holding the pin so the trailer doesn't fall off. Possibly a stolen or civil issue possibly started fire around Stryker Road on Highway 51. Now it's Chevron. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, how the hell do you hold a pin in place to the trailer? Well, oh. First of all, my daughter, my oldest daughter, had a, a Kia Soul. That's not big enough to pull anything. I hope it was a bigger Kia. <laughs> It's got a flat tire. It's starting fires all over the place. And you got some poor lady sitting in the back holding the pin so the trailer doesn't fall off. Hang on, honey. Don't lose that couch. That thing, we might be able to put that leg back on and make it work again. Don't drop it, Ethel. We'll be screwed. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, I got another one. Hey. You know, back when you used to be a real cop and actually work the street, you know, and work accidents. Uniform. This one actually comes from a real police report. I found the real accident report. And this, I can't tell you the agency because it's only kind of a snapshot, um, but it happened on road U036. It's a highway. The speed limit is 65. It's 0.5 miles east from County Road 11, where the speed limit is also 65. Here's the narrative of the traffic accident, Steve. (laughs) 
Victim 01, a wayward deer, illegally and during a time of darkness, crossed U.S. Highway 36 outside of the marked deer crossing area. Victim deer was struck by vehicle one and pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, that's, you know, that's a, that's a police officer on a slow shift just I'm being a smart you, ass. That's what he's doing. He's being a smart ass. I got in trouble one time for doing a... Uh, accident diagram with the deer on there, and I used red pen to draw blood coming out of the deer's <laughs> nose. <laughs> that got kicked back, you know. And then, hey, we had a couple troops though that uh, deer hitting deers was a big thing. Uh, we used to have to put these deer whistles on because mm-hmm. deer, when they see your lights, they stand. And so I saw a couple letters that started, you know, like Deer Colonel. No one was more surprised than me when a deer suddenly decided to end its life by jumping in front of my patrol car. That's a, absolutely, absolutely. And you know what? I mean, you know, on those midnight shifts, if it's a slow night, you got to come up with something to keep yourself awake, keep you busy, you know? Oh, I have to save that story. I, I did some stuff to scare the shit out of people. Tim Schultz, if you're listening, you know who you are. I, I'll save that story for later, man. It's a classic. Oh, this is a good one. All right, Steve, I got another one for you. It's the burning bush. Actually, the burning brush. A Burning Brush Drive resident reported that sometime between 2.30 and 8.30 p.m. July 15th, someone broke into his home by smashing a window. Okay, so far so good. Yeah, yeah. Right? The resident also discovered that a box of Pop-Tarts had been opened and that one was missing. The victim said the suspect might also have used the pool table. Nothing else appeared to be missing. What did he use the pool table for? Well, last week we had chicken McNuggets, so I don't want to know what he did with the pool cue. Uh, you know, that's funny, except for the pop tart. Don't be, you know, don't be wasting pop tarts. That's like oh a God, basic yeah, food group, especially the blueberry frosted. I, I dig those. Yes, blueberry frosted. Those were good in the morning. You're running out the door. You don't got time for anything else. Cup of coffee. <laughs> Two of them pop tarts, man. Get wired. Be sugar high. Ready for the day. Oh uh, yeah, you're good to go. You ready I, for this one? Yeah, but I, I still, you need to do a little bit of research. I want to know what he did to the pool table. And I know the listeners do because <laughs> there's a couple of our listeners kind of sick. They're going to come uh, up with some memes. Yeah, um, you need you folks need some help out there, a couple of them. You know who you are. <laughs> All right. Well, Steve, here's one. This one, this one, th- this one is pretty good until you get to the end. 12.21 p.m. A caller in West Greeley reported that there was a very large blackbird in the backyard with a wingspan of two feet. That's a pretty damn big bird. The caller said the bird was not being aggressive, but it was scary because of his size. So officers responded. Guess what they found? (laughs) The bird was actually a barbecue cover. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And somebody is, is was that person, the reporter, a a tweaker? (laughs) Was he taking a little trip? You know what I mean? (laughs) I'm telling you, man, this... I have to edit out that phone thing. That's all right. We'll go from there. Man, I'm telling you, yeah. The birds. You got to watch out for them. I saw that Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds. The Birds. You know, people think this is silly what we're doing, but <laughs> this stuff really does get reported. <laughs> it does. Well, I got something for you now. I have a new feature. Oh, Lord. So here we go. Oh. What year was it? Okay. All right, Steve. All right. This happened on December 26th, or December 6th, in either 1927 1937 or 1947. I'll read you the story. Okay. And you have to guess. All right. Dog denounced on police blotter by irate passerby. This happened in Endicott, New York on December 6th. This entry, author unidentified, appears on the Endicott police blotter. Man called to denounce a dog of Robel Avenue 
or Robble Avenue, this dog samples pedestrians who pass by the premises and is hated and feared by all and sundry. Complainant who wished to remain anonymous vowed he would cause the offending canine to rapidly become extinct if gendarmes, gendarmes, the French police, didn't halt its depredations. I don't even understand what some of those words are. Well, Steve, because they have more than two syllables. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, Steve, so... December 6th, 1927, 1937, or 1947? What year was it? Oh, let's see. Let's go with... Um, what are you looking up there? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to think what was going on in history back during that time. Let's go with 1947, because somebody's going to help him come to a quick end. <laughs> well, guess what? Ding, 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 ding. I'm you right. got it. Oh, come out of the Victoria Advocate in Victoria, Texas. On It was published in the paper December 7th, 1947. So, Steve, if you ever want to denounce a dog by an irate passerby... I got nowhere to go. And I've actually been to Victoria. Javier and I got to go and speak there. There's some fine people down there. So the funny thing is, this happened in Endicott, New York, but it's reported in the Victoria, uh, Texas paper. Maybe it was a slow <laughs> day in Victoria. <laughs> well, Victoria's not a very big place. <laughs> no, apparently not. If you guys were the highlight of the trip down there. Oh, it was great. They treated us like kings, too. Just some of the yeah. nicest people we ever meet. <clears throat> well, hey, let's get into this now. Let's get into this episode, because like I said and teased last week, this one's personal for you. Why don't you set this up for us? All right. This is a very special episode for, for me personally because we're going to hear from my old partner, Kevin Stevens. Kevin and I were partners in Miami starting, in, let's see, I got there in 87 and he got there in 88. And we were partners until I went to South America in 1991. And in the summer of 1989, we were going to do a, a deal. I won't get into too many details because you're getting ready to listen to the story. But uh, you've heard of Murphy's Law. Well, let me tell you, I'm telling you firsthand, it's true. I live by that every day. And this was a very bad day for DEA on uh, in 1989 in South Florida in Hialeah, a suburb of Miami. Uh, not only was Kevin shot, but our informant was killed. And I'm going to leave it at that because I don't want to get into the details of the story. But here's something special. This interview, and you know, we're in 2021 now. This is the first time Kevin and I have ever sat down and gone over this shooting incident detail by detail, just because I don't know why. It's just, you know, would we, we remain partners. We're still friends all these years later. Um, you know, we made sure he was taken care of. We just never sat down and talked about it, you know. And, and now, I mean, when I was still on the job and guys were getting shootings, I made it mandatory. It was, it was policy that you had to go for counseling. And a lot of the guys didn't want to do it, and I would make them go to counseling. And you know what? When Kevin got shot, I never went to counseling, uh, which I, I need all the counseling I can get now. But, uh, <laughs> As you'll find this, out when we listen to this episode. Yeah. Well, and all these years later, and it hasn't happened in a long time, but occasionally. And I mean, it's, it's rarely now, but occasionally I still have a dream about Kevin getting shot. So uh, it's an exciting episode. It's uh, <laughs> I'm anxious for you guys to hear Kevin's his voice and his demeanor and his tone because he's not a very excitable person. Yeah, the only exciting thing that happened in this, I spent a lot of time editing out the fucking lawnmower that had to be going on <laughs> while we were doing this. Anyway, let's say, let's say that. Let's get into the episode. We'll talk more about this in the intro. So, Steve, I got to ask you, are you ready to pay? <laughs> are you ready to play the biggest game of all, the game of crimes? Like I said earlier, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Here we go.
right, everybody. Welcome back. Today's episode is brought to you by the letter F for Florida, because that's where our next guest is coming in from. We were going to say F for, you know, funny, F for, you know, fabulous, but Murphy got jealous because he says he was the better looking, better agent in Miami. So we're going to talk to Kevin. So Kevin Stevens, former DEA, welcome to Game of Crimes, amigo. Thank you. Glad, glad to be here. You don't look like you're glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably coming off a bender from last night. Is that it's, right, Kevin? <laughs> no, it's, it's a little early for me. I'm retired. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why we were worried about that. Well, I was, uh, so you just first, I think we t- talked about this before, but I got to tell everybody the first joke I ever heard when I went down to training in Florida one time for cop stuff. Somebody says these three old men are sitting, all retired down in Florida, sitting on the park bench. And the first guy goes, you know, every morning at seven, I wake up and I used to be able to pee just like that. Guy goes, you think that's bad? He said, every morning at eight, I used to be able to wake up and poop just like that. And the third guy goes, you guys don't understand. You guys, it's, I have it bad. I, every morning at seven, I pee. Every morning at eight, I poop. They go, what's your problem? I don't wake up till nine. Like Kevin. <laughs> hey, and everybody, just so you know, this uh, we're giving him such a hard time because Kevin uh, was one of my very first partners in DEA when we were in Miami back in the 1980s. So uh, it's an honor to have him on here with us, but also it's always fun to bust chops. Oh, you're going to get a lot of shit, and so is Murph on this episode. So. <laughs> well, and you're going to get a lot of shit, too, because you couldn't figure out what the hell you wanted to do before you got into DEA. You had a very strange path going into DEA, and in fact, you should have used some of that training to keep yourself out of this line of work. So let's, I mean, you're originally an Indiana boy. We were talking about that. So, hey, how did you, what did you do first before you got at, you know, when you were in college and, you know, your first kind of work, what did you do before you got into DEA? Um, Actually, I had, uh, I went to Ball State and had got my criminal justice degree, uh, BS in criminal justice and a minor in psychology. And then after that, I went back to school and got a master's in clinical psychology. So I worked, I had moved, once I graduated, I moved to Denver and uh, started working in the field of psychology. I did that for about six, seven years. So, and then prior or after that, I was deciding, uh, I noticed or I knew that you had to get into DEA or FBI or whatever federal agency. You had to get into that before you were 35 years old at the time. Now it's 37, but then it was 35. Um, So I thought, what the hell, I'll go ahead and apply for this and try it out. If I don't like it, I can always go back to psychology. So Well, let's let's rewind a little bit before you get too far into there, because what kind of psychology, first of all, how the hell did you end up in Denver from Indiana? And second of all, you talked about an interesting conversation you had with your roommate that led you into sports psychology. So dive into that yes. a little bit. Right. In fact, that's um, he was out in Denver, Colorado. That's how I ended up in Denver. He and I were going to tr- uh, try a, a sports psychology type business. Uh, like I said, he was the one that was interested in it first, and then he got me interested in it. So when he moved to Denver, I kind of followed him out there. And... Uh, what was really hard about it was nobody knew anything about sports psychology. I'm talking like the early 80s to the mid 80s. And um, when I did my master's thesis, usually the first section of your master's thesis is, you know, research that's already been done. And I could hardly find 
anything. That whole section of my master's thesis was almost blank because there was so little done in sports psychology. Now, every professional team, every professional golfer, everybody has their own sports psychologist. So if you just stuck it out, you could have been freaking rich and in the Bahamas somewhere on your own damn yacht exactly. instead of this episode. <laughs> That's so for damn sure. Yeah, you what could be fund. You could be funding us for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be calling you boss. Well, probably Spon- not. But <laughs> yeah, no, no but, but sponsored by Kevin Stevens. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so, but um, but you you kind of worked through some stuff. You were you were within an office. What was the precipitating event that you decided? If I'm going to do it, now's the time. I mean, I know there was an age, but there wasn't there another factor that you kind of decided if I'm going to pull the plug and do this, I got to do it now. Yes. Um, I had taken several years trying to get this business off the ground. And then the meantime, my partner kind of backed out of it. So I was left doing it myself. Um, but I was able to hook up with a, a orthopedic surgeon and his wife. They owned a sports medicine business and they provided me office space. Um, also constant referrals of clients uh, into my office. So what happened was they ended up getting a divorce and they shut the business down, their business. <laughs> That's been known closed, to happen, yeah. Yeah, they closed everything down. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to try criminal justice for a while. And <laughs> if I don't like it, I'll go back to sports or psychology. Well, let me ask you a question, though. Before you did that, you did something else after high school, did you? Um, Military? Sure. Oh, well, that was, I went to Ball State for a year and a half, and then I couldn't decide what I wanted to major in at that point in time, so I said, the hell with this, I'm just going to quit and join the Marine Corps. <laughs> so that's wow. what I did with two two buddies, and I went in on the buddy program and uh, joined, just took off and joined the Marine Corps back, that was the early 70s. Right, so the just... noise you guys are hearing is uh, Kevin is actually out on the deck of an aircraft carrier right now, and planes are getting ready to take <laughs> off. Uh, that's the mowing. Well, you know, we'll just deal with it. We'll figure it out. Hey, if you guys are if you guys are offended by lawnmower noise, you know, hey, this is not the podcast for you. So, hey, well, who, well, first of all, you know, thank you for your service on that. And that was right. a tough time to be in the Marine Corps because you were just that was just, uh, you know, just after Vietnam. Right. Actually, when I joined, the Vietnam War was still going on, but a month later is when they had the agreement and stopped sending people over there. So the colonel I worked for said, you're not going anywhere. He wanted me to stay there with him. So he kind of did me a favor. I didn't have to go over there. What were you doing? What kind of work were you doing in the Corps? In the Corps, my MOS was 3043, which is like mechanized supply. We used to say in the rear with the beer. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? That just fits you. That's the first time I ever heard that. I was not expecting that. And by the way, we had to train Murphy on my uh, son-in-law, my new son-in-law, as of this last October, was uh, a Marine. And uh, you'd never say ex-Marine or former Marine. You say, you know, either a Marine formerly on active duty. But, you know, it's, it's a great thing about, you know, I was Army. Um, Steve was lost um, in West Virginia. Steve was, Steve was back here protecting the wives while you guys were on active duty, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's not even go there. Um, so, uh, no, but, you know, but, but that, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a thing, too. It's kind of, is that where you maybe got your idea? Is that part of what 
um, led you towards maybe DEAs? Like you wanting to, did you want to serve again? Or did you just look initially at this as just being a job just because, you know, you're getting out of psychology and you're looking for a job or did any of the core and any of that prior stuff have an impact on you for joining uh, the feds? I think, I think it did. Um, it just kind of made me want more exciting type stuff after doing psychology and sitting behind the desk for so long. I thought, you know, I need some some action here. Little did I know I was going to get all the action I wanted in about 15 seconds. But That's exactly what I was getting ready to say. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. So so you apply. Who, did you apply for anybody else besides DEA? Yes, I, I applied for um, the FBI, DEA, and actually the CIA. And uh, DEA was the first one to call me. Did you ever get a call back, though, from the Bureau or from the agency? Um, not that I can remember. DEA called first, and I was just, I was getting old, so I had to do something <laughs> quick. If what, I you, to... what were you looking to do inside the CIA? What, what was of interest to you there? Were you looking at being a case officer, an intelligence officer, or uh, an analyst, or what? Yeah, I just like... It was like the danger factor, same thing with DEA, just being on the edge. Um, I think a lot of us that were in law enforcement kind of, you know, that's what drew us to that on a daily basis. You know, you're, you're dealing with scumbags and, you know, it could uh, turn to shit real quick. So just walking on the edge like that is, I mean, it's the adrenaline rush, I think, more than anything else. Although... Um, you know, I checked into the state police, and at that time, I think they were making about fifteen thousand a year. So, and I saw the potential in the feds uh, was much better as far as financial wise. So, yeah, when I got on the state patrol in Kansas, same thing. Not, I mean, you did it because you love the work, but the pay sucked originally. So, yeah. So, hey, uh, so the worst thing probably you faced uh, then as a in the in your office was a paper cut, right? Was that about as dangerous as it got? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that or shutting the door on your finger or something. <laughs> or, you know, maybe tripping down the steps when you go to lunch. I mean, that's always a hazard. <laughs> or coming into your house. That's a story we're going to get into as well here in just a little bit. So <laughs> you apply for DEA, you get there. What's the academy like for you? When did, when did, you, when did you join DEA? Um, March 14th, 1988. I wasn't going to be that specific, but do you remember what time? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, we went to the FBI Academy. DEA didn't have their own academy at the time, so DEA agents went through Quantico just like FBI agents, only only we had our own separate instructors. And, and how long were you? So when you went through, uh, Murph, how, how, what, you came on when? I came on in June 87. All right, so you had just a few months on him uh, right. before he got on. You went through the academy in the same place, right, at Quantico then? Yep. Yeah, when I went through, there were five DEA classes going on. There were a couple FBI classes, and then there was a National Academy class, which is the state local guys that come in. You know, it was it was almost impossible to find an open bed there at the academy. What was it like for you, Kevin? What did you think of the academy? I mean, you'd been doing this sports psychology stuff, kind of had a cushy life, you know, nothing too tough at that point. But you were always athletic, though, weren't you? Uh, pretty much. I was one of those guys that was good at everything but great at nothing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Probably the best thing I, I did athletically was play golf in high school. Um, I didn't even try. I had too much fun in college 
so I didn't even try to be an athlete there. But um, well, well, so I got to ask a question though. So you're having a great time in college, and you decide to go to the Marine Corps. Did you think that was going to be as much fun as chasing <laughs> girls in college and drinking beer? No, that was kind of spur of the moment type thing. I had two buddies, and uh, me and one of them were looking at to, thinking about going in the military. We checked the Army, the Navy, and about that time, another buddy crashed like three cars in one week. And so he just looked at us and he goes, fuck it, let's go into Marine Corps. And we, all three of us said, okay. We went down and signed up. And I remember the first night laying there in the top bunk, rubbing my burr head, thinking, what the <laughs> fuck did I do here? Was alcohol involved in your decision to join the Marine Corps? Uh, it's been a long time ago. It could have been. <laughs> Yeah, spur of the moment. So you joined the Marine Corps. Vietnam is still going on, and now where did you go to? Where did you go to basic at? Um, I was a California Marine or a Hollywood Marine. I went to um, San Diego. Oh, nice, cushy out there. So, oh, yeah, is that a real Marine? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, Steve, no, let's not start <laughs> that kind of a fight. Training's still the same. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, Pendleton. You know. You know. Who knows? You know. Let's not let's not start an interagency you know rivalry yet, but uh, we'll we'll save that for a little bit later. So, so you're in the academy, right? So now now that you're going through, you're how old are you compared to the other guys in the class? You're like one of the oldest. Um, there was only one guy older than I was when we went in. What did you think of the academy? Actually, I was I was pretty surprised. I didn't expect it to be as hard as it was. Um, especially going through Marine Corps boot camp. Physically, I thought it was pretty <clears throat> pretty close to Marine Corps boot camp, but you didn't have the drill instructors that were disciplining you, you know, on about an hourly basis. You know, you were doing bends and thrusts or push-ups or whatever. You didn't have that at Quantico. Plus, the, um, the classes were pretty difficult, too, as far as all the law and and uh you know i'm trying to remember the uh what was the code that we enforced it's been so long i've forgotten the honor code no are you talking about usc yeah oh title 21 title 21 <laughs> there yeah. you go see I've, I've been retired for 10 years i've you know, they, might, they say that drinking beer kills brain cells and that it kills the weaker cells. I think we might have got into your good cells here, buddy. <laughs> hey, I look at it this way, man. My mind's like a bookshelf. It only holds so many books. You put one on, another one falls off. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Just a victim of the bookshelf effect. Now, so, I, now I put one on and two fall off. So. <laughs> Unfortunately, I know the feeling. Yeah. Well, so you're, so you're going through this academy. Um, at some point, you get you get your this, which we've talked to other DEA agents like Murph and Javier and um, uh, Jeff Moore in a previous episode uh, talking about uh, bringing down Leo Sharp. Uh, you know the movie The Mule was made about, and everybody's kind of got the same story. It's kind of like you get your three picks, but rarely do you get your three picks. So, do you remember what were your three picks that you the three areas you wanted to go to? Right, I think mine were um, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, Tampa, Florida, and then Phoenix, Arizona. I wanted someplace warm. I'd had enough, enough of the cold weather. And what did you get instead? Miami. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you'd known Murph was going to be in Miami, would you have 
protest it a little bit more and say, send me to Iowa. That's the best <laughs> thing that ever happened, that boy right there. <laughs> what did you think when you got Miami? Now, were you married at the time, dating, anything like that? Did you have anything to worry about, or could you just make that decision go, yep, that's good, I'm headed down there? Oh, hell no. no. He wasn't married. Uh, I, was, I was divorced <laughs> at the time. How many times? How many times? <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> Holy cow, Steve. You actually, actually, at that time, it was, it was only two. I've only had a couple two. Since then. <laughs> but, and here's the question. How many of them saw their first anniversary? Um, two of them, I think. <laughs> uh, not, not of the first two. <laughs> no, not I, the first two. Yeah, neither one Wait of them. That, that's what we're getting to. I can do math. Two and two <laughs> equals four. <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. Who says, I'm a sl slow learner. <laughs> In fact, said, I've, given, I've given up on it. Yeah, I'm not that good at it, so why you, suffer? You know what shocks me the most about all this is that Morgan could count and add two plus two. That's great, Morgan. We're proud of you, buddy. I'm surprised that you knew it was correct. You know, <laughs> well, I'm counting on my fingers over here under the table. Under the table? Never mind. Let's We'll keep this conversation at least somewhat above board. So you get Miami. So what what did you think when you got Miami? Did you think, hey, this is good. I'm going to be like like Merced. You're going to be Don Johnson driving flashy cars, wearing bling, you know, leisure suits, and uh, you know, doing that stuff. That's that's what I initially thought. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and what did you come crashing down to reality? <laughs> when they took me out and showed me my first government vehicle it was like a 1982 Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Uh, it, ran, it ran on seven out of eight cylinders most of the time. You're always, you're always the very last car in surveillance because you couldn't keep up with them. Hey, do you remember, so this brings up a memory here that I've forgotten about. Remember when uh, Drew Lasker was, was driving that car and the people in his neighborhood asked him not to park it out front anymore? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you, you know you're in trouble, too. One of the UC vehicles I used to have, it was an Army surplus vehicle. And so it was a, one of those old uh, kind of like GMC, big GMCs, but it was painted purple with tinted windows. And the worst part about it, it was a diesel. You can... <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> and I'm going, why do I have a diesel vehicle? It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> you're just a fortunate one. You were the lucky one that day. Well, but, hey, when there was a snowstorm, I didn't have to worry about getting around. So. So your 1982 Cadillac Coupe de Ville, and you're, I mean, yeah, you're not riding high yet, but what was the work like when you first started? When's the first time you met Murph? Uh, right, right away, or did you, and how did you guys become partners? Do they have a dog sniffing contest? You walk around and put you in a park, sniff each other's butt? How does that work? Hey, this wasn't the Kansas State Patrol. <laughs> no, actually, they just, when you get there, you meet with the, um, Associate Sack, and he assigned you to whatever group you're going to. I ended up getting assigned to the Group 10 in Miami, which is the Caribbean group. We handled primarily boat and plane smuggling um, through the Caribbean islands. So it was actually, I think, the best one because we did a ton of traveling throughout Jamaica, uh, the Bahamas, all over the place. Even I don't know how many times I've been. We used to stage out of uh, Gitmo, Cuba a lot. So oh, wow. Did you go visit any of the prisoners? I guess they didn't really have prisoners down there at Gitmo at that time, did they? No, they didn't. Yeah. What was that like in Cuba? Well, you, we, they wouldn't let us off the base, so it was very uh, 
subdued. You couldn't really do much of anything if you were there. Like I said, it was you get there the day before you were going to take off. You might meet with an informant and, and have him bring his boat down there. Then we would get on the boat and head like towards Jamaica or the Cayman Islands or wherever you're supposed to hook up with the bad guys and pick up the load. Hey, so here's the burning question. The first time you met Murph, first impression. What a stud. Yeah, now, Mark, you're, <laughs> I should put you under oath. Well, what was your first impression, Kevin? Uh, definitely country bumpkin type, you know. <laughs> hey, I'm proud of my roots. Nice, nice guy, actually, but, um, but country he, was, he was from West Virginia, so what can I say? Wait a minute, let's get this straight. Now, I'm from Tennessee and West Virginia, so I'm not oh, only, a, right. I'm not only a hillbilly, I'm also a redneck, so let's get all this worked out here, okay? <laughs> that's true, I forgot that. Yeah, so, so, but you, so you guys are working together. How long did you work together um, uh, while you were down in Miami? I think it was about three years, wasn't it? I yeah. got there in 88. And when did you I left in 91? Yeah. Yeah. It was about, um, about three years. We just kind of gravitated to each other because we were both, I'm from Indiana and grew up spending a lot of my summers uh, on my grandparents' farm, uh, a dairy, Where dairy was that farm. At? So that was in Indianapolis or Indiana, but Indiana. The east side of Indianapolis. Wow. Cool. So you, so you're down there now. My understanding from doing some additional um, investigation, you know, and uh, reconnaissance is you, your favorite place to hang out down there, it appears, was a place called Uncle Al's. Is that Woo-hoo. correct? That's Agent correct. Agent Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> Special Agent Stevens, that's, yes. That's, that's well, true. Why was Uncle Al's the place to be? Um, that's just where a lot of the agents hung out. You know, you always had some place to go after you did a big deal or something. A lot of times we would just grab a couple of cases of beer and throw it on the hood of the car in the DEA parking lot. You could, we wouldn't be able to do that nowadays, I don't think. No, and you know what? The thing about Uncle Al's, they had ice cold beer. The pitchers weren't outrageous. They had pool tables, you know. The... And the, that's back when I first remember ordering chicken wings they had yeah. the best wings and they were like three three and a half bucks for like 10 wings yeah so you, so you could go there on a agent salary and live it up well i also <laughs> have it on good authority that um steve's wife connie thought you might have been a bad influence on steve can you <laughs> confirm or deny that kevin <laughs> I would have to confirm that. I don't know why, uh, but... <laughs> well, I think it has something to do with coming home one night, Murph. Do you want to kind of tell that part of the story about how uh, you and Kevin came home one night, you brought him back to the house, and oh, you yeah. might have had a little bit of an equilibrium problem? Yeah. You know, so what happened is one of our friends in one of the other groups got promoted to a GS-12, and it was, and tradition was, you know, when you got a promotion you put that first raise, the, you know, the extra money you're going to earn, you put that on the bar for you, the guys you work with. And so we went to some bar there and, and down in Miami and in the afternoon, and that kind of developed into the evening. And, you know, by the time we're ready to go, we're just shit-faced, <laughs> uh, Kevin and I both. So we somehow drove back to my house, to Connie and I's house. And uh, and this was the thing with Connie, if, if you were – if you and I were partners, she treated you like family. So, you know, it's it's good and bad because she'll chew your ass out just like she would mine. <laughs> so we got there. Our house didn't have a, a garage. It had a carport. So I told Kevin, I said, now, 
the door coming out of the carport led right into the family room. I said, let's go through the carport door. Just sit down. We had two recliners right there. I said, just sit down and act, you know, cool. <laughs> and maybe we'll get away with this. So we come walking in and I make it to my chair and sit down. Kevin comes walking in, trips on air. There was nothing there for him to trip on. Falls out the floor. <laughs> Connie comes running off, you know, in the in the room to find out what the, all the noise is. And what's wrong with him? Are you guys okay? And then she, you know, you know how wives get that look. You know, we're start getting the look. And she's like, "You guys have been drinking, haven't you?" And we're like, "No, <laughs> maybe just it's a couple." <laughs> you know, and boy, she got pissed. Uh, make a long story short, we put Kevin in the car. She drove him home. <laughs> I was sitting in the back seat. She said, you know, he's sitting in the front seat with Connie. We get in front of his apartment complex, in front of his apartment. She gets around, walks over, jerks the door open, pulls him out, stands him up in the parking lot, slams the door, and we drive off. And I'm, <laughs> I'm in the back seat to around looking at Kevin, and he's just kind of wobbling in the back, in the parking lot, like, what the hell just happened, you know? It took me like three times to get up the curb. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, then the funny thing is, you know, the next morning I call Kevin. I was like, hey, dude, how you doing? <laughs> I think that was a Friday. So I'm calling him on Saturday. And uh, he said, what the hell happened last night? And so we kind of go through it. And I said, what happened with you when you got home? He said, well, I took my dog out back to pee there next to the pond. And he said, next thing I know, I woke up out there next to the pond. It was daylight. <laughs> and you just got to remember there's alligators in the ponds around there you know so that wasn't a, a very safe thing to do wow <laughs> good story huh <laughs> well i think there's another one too we, before we get into the big story here but uh wasn't there a time you guys were supposed to be in miami and connie was checking on you and it's like uh you had upgraded your uh, G-Ride now. You kind of had a faster ride. One of you had an IROC, and the other one had a, what, a Mustang or something? Yeah, I had a five-liter Mustang. Murph had the IROC. Yeah. So <laughs> let's talk about this. You guys were doing a deal, and you, you were supposed to be out of town, right? And so you were going to go meet Connie. And what happened there, Kevin? No, well, we were just debriefing an, an informant, and that was down in Miami and Murphy had called <laughs> Connie and told her we were down in Miami debriefing the CI and we'll be up there in a little while. Well, once we got done debriefing the informant, he gets on the phone and says, Hey, we're leaving Miami now. Um, we'll see you at uncle. In fact, we were going to uncle Al's yep. and we'll see oh, there's you a at, shock. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you at uncle Al's in like 30 minutes because we were coming from Miami and this was up in uh, like Cooper city. Yeah. And so he hangs up the phone and looks at me and he goes, you want to race? And I said, you're on. So we jump in our cars and head up <laughs> I 75 doing who knows how fast, um, and we finally get to Uncle Al's. We go in, sit down, order the first pitcher of beer. And Connie comes walking in. And she looks at both of us again. And she goes, I knew you guys were lying to me. You've been sitting here all afternoon. And we had, and we just walked in the door. And I told her, I said, go feel the hoods of the car. I said, it's got to be scalding hot because we were doing about 100 miles an hour coming up here. And she, I mean, she still didn't believe it. I don't think she believes us to this day. <laughs> yeah. oh, I thought the fire department out there putting out the fire and the, uh, you know, the Camaro and the IROC might have been a clue. You guys have been. Now, how, how long should it have taken you with, quote, normal driving? Probably about 30 minutes. We probably made it in about 15. <laughs> <laughs> 
We were screaming, oh. that's for sure. That's a good thing the troops weren't out there because <laughs> they had five-liter Mustangs, too. They, they would have been able to keep up. They could have caught you. Yeah, I remember yeah. when uh, some of our troopers got the first Mustangs. The only problem with them, there was no place to put a freaking prisoner in those things. They were so small up front. Every time they made an arrest, you had to call somebody else to come get them. Yeah. yeah. They were yeah. fun to drive, though, but dropped a lot of transmissions. But anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> Well, we could talk cars all day because I still have a 2000 Camaro Super Sport. Actually, just picking it up from the shop this afternoon, fixing some work on it. That thing still runs. I mean, it oh, sounds good, looks good, and I look good in it, by the way, I will say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. No, I do. The, the speakers, man, oh, and the hair flowing. You know, I still got all my hair, Murph, so it does flow in the wind when, uh, when I drive. Yeah. And uh, it might go pretty fast. I'm not sure I've heard from a friend, but... <laughs> well, you know, speaking of uh, moving fast and stuff, uh, you guys had a little thing, Kevin, you used to call Federal Friday. What was Federal Friday? Uh, usually um, agents would tell their bosses they were going to go out and check addresses or look for tags on some trafficker they were trying to arrest or whatever. And uh, then you'd head up. 75 and go to Uncle Al's in the afternoon. <laughs> Usually it was about four o'clock. You know, you weren't, you weren't cheating the government that much. Sometimes <laughs> you might go to Hooters or you might go to the Intercoastal or. But, but in this case, you guys were starting to, you guys had started working um, uh, a case or you guys were going to do a case and it was with an informant named Rafa. And you guys were setting up, uh, actually, this was supposed to go down Thursday, this one case. Can you talk about that a little bit, Kevin, how the setup was, what it is you were going to do, you know, what was, uh, you know, what was the plan? Uh, I'll, I'll try and remember the details. It's been, what, over 30 years ago? Uh, come on, come on, buddy. You can do it. You can do it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we had uh, one agent in the group that had worked with this informant for like nine, ten years, and uh, I, had, I don't know how many cases they had done, but a ton of them. Um, so he had set up a deal with uh, like three traffickers that were Dominican from Dominican Republic. This was on a Thursday in Hialeah, and what was supposed to happen was the bad guys. We're going to bring, what was it, Murph, 17 kilos, something like that? We were, we, we were supposed to be buying 17 kilos of cocaine off of these traffickers. Um, it was supposed to go down in Hialeah in another in different informant's house. Uh, we were going to meet them there. They were going to, we were going to, they were going to um, pull out the dope and we were supposed to test it or the undercover agent was going to test the dope there. They thought that we had the cash and, and back then what we were going to do, every, everything was when the trunk goes up, that was the bus signal. So they were supposed to take the kilos in to have it tested in the house and they were going to come out and when the trunk lid went up, um, everybody was going to be arrested. So let's, so, before we get there though, but, the, but on Thursday though, this, you, you would actually set up to do this on Thursday and it didn't go through, right? Do you know what happened? Uh, did they make you? Did, did somebody get hinky? No, I think if I remember correctly, there was another deal going on. Like if <laughs> this was Hialeah, Florida back in the eighties. So there was another deal going on about two blocks over and our, traffickers spotted, you know, what they thought might be the police from their deal that was going on. It wasn't actually ours. Um, in this particular case, I was not on the inside security at that time. I was out on the perimeter surveillance on Thursday. 
Um, I forget who weren't you in there, Murph? Yeah, I, I thought it was me, you, and Lynn, but uh, maybe I'm it thinking was, about Friday. That was on Friday because Kevin O'Brien was one that was with you. Oh, okay. Now, in you, terms Kevin of Br yeah, in terms of deals and seizures, 17 kilos. I mean, you guys were working, you know, multiple hundred kilos deals. So, why did you do a 17 kilo deal? Uh, were you looking to work, you know, were you looking to work it up? Were they a targeted organization? Why, why do, and I'm not, you know, for local law enforcement, 17 kilos would be a good seizure, but for you guys, that's like, doesn't seem like it's kind of at the threshold. Why, why do a small deal like that? Uh, that was kind of the agent that was doing the case that was, he enjoyed doing that quick stuff. Um, he would have Rafa set something up and run out and do it. And, um, you know, that was just a quickie type thing for stats, probably more than anything else. Get out of the office and have some fun. Okay. So, but this was, so obviously this wasn't your case, but you were helping him out, helping. Now, how many people total were involved uh, in this operation, you know, between Thursday and Friday from DEA? And did you have any task force or any outside people or was it strictly DEA? I think it was strictly DEA from what I remember. Um, and we had probably pretty much the whole group. At that time, we had about 10 agents in the group. So we had three guys inside the residence, and then everybody else was on the perimeter surveillance. And we had to stay a little further out just because it was Hialeah, and, you know, they could get suspicious if they saw us sitting too close, So, which is what happened on Thursday. So on Friday, we were even more um, security conscious. Of, and we had, you know, the same amount of people inside as we did outside the day before. Only and just, were just you know, different what, people. And Morgan, just to to put this in a little better perspective, a 17 kilo deal versus the other ones we were doing. Like when Kevin and I first met, we were working on that Haitian deal. Remember, Kevin? Yeah, the surge beyond me. And how many kilos was that? I think it was like 500 and some. Yeah. So doing a 17 kilo deal for most people would be like doing a couple ounces. It was just, it was no big deal to be, I mean, we didn't really, the problem was we didn't take it serious. Well, and that's, you know, and I don't, you don't want to do Monday morning quarterbacking. That's not what we're going to do here because we've all had those things to where woulda, coulda, shoulda, if I'd only done stuff. But Steve, you kind of hit upon it too. It's like, this was Thursday and then Friday. It wasn't a, it wasn't a big deal in terms of, you know, the size. And so it was almost like it wasn't a big deal. And that kind of got into, Kevin, in terms of, like, when you guys went in there, you guys were just dressed in civilian clothes, right? I mean, um, yes. and, and everybody else, right? Everybody was in civvies, no distinctions, no raid jackets, no nothing, right? Well, they, the guys inside had their raid jackets and uh, the, the vests on on Thursday. On Thursday, we were pretty well organized. What happened was on Friday, I think we, had, we were out doing a traffic stop with uh, Lenny, I think. Uh, on Friday, when they called us and said, hey, that deal from yesterday is on again, so go back to the address. And so everybody from where they were at just came down to uh, the same residence, and we split up, and this time I went inside, Murphy and a guy named Glenn Piper, another agent. But that was the three people that was inside, and everybody else was on the perimeter surveillance. And who was the agent handling the informant? Who was handling Rafa? Um, a guy named Pete, Pete Saren. 
So you've got four DEA agents inside, one with the informant, and you three are hiding in the bedroom uh, for the takedown team, right? That's correct. Now, did you think that this, did you think, I mean, you had a false start Thursday, and we've all had those things where, you know, two or three, after two or three times, you go, yeah, this thing ain't going to happen. Did you really think it was going to happen that day? Uh, You never knew um, with this particular informant. Uh, You know, he had a lot of bullshit, too, so. It was kind of, you know, hit and miss. Yeah. And we call these cases hummers because it always hums along, you know. Yeah, it <laughs> might it might carry on, you know, for weeks sometimes. Yeah. You know, the C man, the CI is trying to make money, so yeah. he's trying to make it work. Oh yeah, he's incentivized. So how long? From the time you got there until the bad guys showed up, how long were you guys in position before uh, the deal starts to go down? Which which day are you talking? Friday. Thursday or Friday? Friday. On Friday, like I said, they just called out on the radio, and because back then we only had like one cell phone in the group, and the boss had it, I think, and yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he carried that. That was a brick. Cell phone, the old Motorola brick. Like yeah. yeah, wasn't like what we have now. But um, they called us, and Murphy and I were out in Miami, somebody doing a traffic stop with another agent. So everybody kind of converged on this house, and uh, that's what we were doing, communicating mainly by radio because he didn't want a bunch of traffic around the house prior to the deal going. So the three of us went in. Oh, it was probably what a half hour or so before the bad guys showed up. Yeah. It went pretty quick. Yeah. Did you ever know if there was any counter surveillance? I mean, did they drive the neighborhood two or three times or whatever, trying to look for stuff? Did you ever know that beforehand? Did anybody tell you, hey, um, you know, we see them doing any kind of counter surveillance? Uh, No, I don't recall that happening. All right. So um, because, you know, now what we're walking into is is the big event we're leading up to. And we purposely haven't told folks on this yet because – we want you to understand the context, right? And so right before we get into this, let's just set the context too. How much, while you were in Miami in this area, how much dope trafficking was going on? How how busy were you guys working dope? I mean, was it, it's not like, like I said, the Midwest and stuff. This was like a high volume area, right? You guys were doing stuff all the time? Oh, yeah. I mean, you had to prioritize what you were doing. You know, if you had a big smuggling boat case, uh, you know, that always took precedent, that or a plane case. And like we said, the 17-kilo deal was like nothing to us at the time. Yeah, and um, how many cases were you normally working, you know, at any one time? How many cases did you have open? Uh, Usually these were, the smuggling cases were long-term. So you might have two or three cases that you're working on. And then these little by bus like these things, these are just, uh, you know, one and done type of thing, right? You're not working any kind of an opera. I mean, you guys just basically show up, do a little bit of paperwork, and then you're done with a, a small deal like this. Is that right? Pretty much. And then, um, you know, whoever the case agent was might talk to the CI and see if they could go a little further up. Um, you know, sometimes they could, sometimes they couldn't. Right. And I think, Steve, you know, when you and I have talked before on other episodes and when we did the whole interview with you and Javier, too, we talked about Miami. I mean, that was when you went down there, too, it was kind of uh, the biggest deal you had done at that time was two ounces. And then you're down there doing four or five hundred kilos. I mean, it was just like 
cocaine was just falling out of the sky, right? You could turn around, throw a rock, and hit a couple hundred kilos. It was almost like that. I mean, it was washing up on the beaches around there, uh, not only in Miami, but over in the Bahamas as well. You know, we used to joke around that if you couldn't make a drug case in South Florida, you need to go get another job. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that's the reason I wanted to do is kind of set that context to let everybody know is that there was stuff going. It's not like you guys didn't have anything else to do, right? It's like you guys had plenty of things going on. And so you're doing this case and it's like, hey, we'll do a quick case. You know, we'll do a quick takedown. And we'll go to Uncle Al's, you know, and have a couple beers and, you know, and then we'll have some fun. But so now... Now you're getting into this, and now this guy shows up. So do you get any indication from the outside that, hey, the targets have arrived? Or how did you first learn that the targets had arrived? Uh, that was over the radio. We were communicating with the, the car radios. Um, so the perimeter surveillance, we already knew um, what type of vehicle the guy was driving. So they had to look out for that to see if it was in the neighborhood. I don't remember getting any, uh, anybody telling us that they showed up prior to just driving up. I don't right. remember them actually doing that's right. Kind of, we were, we were surprised. I mean, you, you and me and Lynn were in that back bedroom with the door closed. And the next thing we know, the bad guys were there. Yeah. Did, now, did your surveillance outside, because, you know, you were talking about they were having to be cautious because they, they didn't do the deal on Thursday. Could they tell you how many people were in the car? I mean, could they tell you, hey, you've got three tangos, you know, coming in, you've got three targets coming in? Did you guys have any information on uh, who was occupying the vehicle when it showed up? Uh, not Not to my knowledge. I remember them just parking a little ways down and two of the people getting out of the vehicle, and that's when we first saw them. So you didn't know that there was a third person in the vehicle at the time? Not that I can recall, no. Yeah. So walk us through now, Kevin. So um, obviously in, in the living room is going to be uh, the other agent, you know, and Rafa, and they're, they're waiting right. for these guys to come in. How was the deal supposed to go down? What was the plan? Um, the bad guys were supposed to bring in a couple of kilos for the undercover and the informant to test. Uh, once they tested it and... and made sure that it was cocaine that they were buying. Um, like I said, we were supposed to, they were supposed to go outside to the trunk of the uh, undercover vehicle, flip the trunk lid up, trunk lid up and um, that was the bus signal. So everybody was supposed to move in and place them under arrest. So let's put this in perspective, too. What was a kilo of Coke going for at about that time? Uh, probably 25 to 30 grand. So if you're looking at 17, you know, to 20 kilos, you're looking at, you know, 450 to half a million dollars is what these guys thought was going to be there in exchange for the 17 kilos, right? Yes. And, and there's no way you're bringing 500 million or $500,000 to a deal, are you? Uh, sometimes we <laughs> would flash that much. But but what I'm saying not, is that but not for to a actually case, do. Yeah, for a case like this, I mean, you don't you don't actually have the money there. This is just you pretend to go out to get the money. Correct. And then you arrest the guys, right? Yes. So when, when was your first indication that, you know, using a technical police term, shit had gone south? <laughs> uh, the, well, the undercover agent was very loud anyway. When he was in the office and stuff, talking on the phone, nobody could talk on the phone because you couldn't hear shit because he was <laughs> talked so loud. That's true. So it was so like then, a normal day at the office. Yeah. 
But uh, the two guys got out of the um, the bad guy's vehicle and started walking towards the front of the house. We were able, or at least I was able, to peek out the window and see them coming up and see what they were, were wearing, um, which is kind of significant in a minute <laughs> when we get a little further down the road. But uh, they came in and put the two kilos on the table, the kitchen table, um, which is not far from the front door. And uh, the Pete, the undercover agent, cut into it and started to test it. And about that time, both of the uh, traffickers pulled out guns and told them to get on the ground. And about that time, Pete starts yelling, you know, don't shoot us, don't shoot us. Um, So what goes through your mind when you start hearing that now? Well, I'm back there in the back bedroom with with Lynn and Steve, and Murphy and I kind of look at each other and go, oh, shit, this is a rip. And he immediately gets on the radio. He had a portable radio. Gets on there and uh, lets surveillance know that it's a rip and they need to get to the house as fast as they can. What's the next thing that happens? Next thing that happened was I kind of look at Murphy and we're like, shit, we got to go save the undercover agent. Uh, Lynn was behind me. So I reached down and grabbed the door. It was all the way at the end of the hallway, away from where the traffickers and the undercovers were. So I reached down and grabbed the door handle and start to pull it open. And about that time, the bad guy, which I had seen what he was wearing, so I knew it was the bad guy, not an agent or the informant, um, pushes the door into my shoulder. And when I look out and I see it's him, that's when I, I yelled police. And as soon as I did that, I hear this popping sound. And I couldn't, I, just for a split second, I'm like, what the hell is that? It sounded like popcorn. And then I realized the door jam starts splintering and hit me in the face. And I thought, this son of a bitch is shooting at me. I couldn't, it was muffled so much, I couldn't tell initially. Um, but the door jam starts splintering. Um, and I, I was able to open a door and maybe four or five inches and get my gun barrel out there because I didn't know exactly where he was at. But I knew that he was across the hall, and so I couldn't shoot down the hall. So I was able to shoot across the hall at him. And he and I was probably maybe 18 inches apart. I always tell people when you're at Quantico, they tell you most most shootouts happen within like two feet. And I always thought, no, that's kind of sounds like bullshit to me. This was like 18 inches. Luckily, the guy couldn't shoot worth a shit because he missed me with most most of them. Um, how many rounds? How many rounds did he get off? He emptied the whole magazine. He was carrying a 45. I think it was a Beretta 45. So maybe what seven or eight rounds? Right, and what I what was going on when he was shooting at me? I'm thinking, okay, where can I go to make sure this guy didn't kill me? And I feel the wind off of one of the bullets go by my right ear, and I'm like, oh shit! (laughs) Now I've got to get down. And let's drill in on it because you know very few people in their life get shot at, much less get shot. What, you know, like you said, at first you're going, what the hell's happening? So how long of a time are we talking about this? Are we talking about a minute? Are we talking about seconds? You know, it, it may feel like it drawn out, but how long, what was the, what was the time like during this? How fast was this happening? 
very, very fast. Um, you know how they say things slow down? Yeah. Well, it, it didn't slow. Initially, it was going real fast. He was shooting at me. I was shooting at him. How many rounds see. did you get off? I think I only got like three or four off. Uh, and then what I decided to do was just go flat on my back. And as I did that, I left my right arm up with my gun hand. Uh, I left my right arm up, and he caught me once in the forearm and once in the upper arm. And, was, and that a, was that a, like a bang-bang, just shot-shot, you got hit, or did you get hit, and then a few seconds later get hit again? No, it was, it was all like within about five seconds. He cranked off all those rounds, and, and I dropped back. Well, I, and I know we're interviewing you, but, you know, since Murph was there, too, we got to pull you into this, Steve. What's going through your mind at this point, too? Where are you located at in relation to Kevin, you know, and the other agent in the room? Well, when when we heard Pete yelling, um, I guess, uh, you know, we all remember things differently a little bit. I walked over and opened that door and peeked down the hallway before Kevin did and saw that's when we could see the two undercovers on the ground. <clears throat> you know, you could hear Pete's loud voice. It was getting louder and louder. And I could see the two bad guys with their backs towards us holding pistols. One was a revolver, one was a pistol. Um, and I eased the door closed to get through. And that's when I got on the radio to call the outside guys and told them it was a ripoff, you know, get on in here. Uh, and then Kevin went over to open the door, and that's when all hell broke loose. So it was, um, you know what, it's... I don't remember things slowing down either, but I think I think where that might come from is... Afterwards, you you relive these type of incidents hundreds of times. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we've I've gone over it in my head, and I'm, you know, Kevin's the one that suffered all the damage here, so I'm sure he relived it multiple times as well. So I, I'm kind of thinking, you know, through my I minored in psychology, so hey, I'm an expert here, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking that that's how things slow down because you continually reassess what took place there because you want to keep it fresh in your mind for court purposes for one thing but also you know we always we're trained to look at all these events as trainers you know you want to learn you want to learn from your mistakes I guess is what I'm trying to say here um, and I've gone back and looked at this now and you know multiple times and and I tell Kevin's story at almost every uh, presentation that Javier and I do because of the seriousness of the event, you know, and the fact that, you know, Kevin's persevered through this whole thing and survived and, and, uh, and well, I don't want to get ahead of us here because I want him to tell you about the rest of his career. But, um, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I, we screwed up on is we closed the door to the bedroom we were in, but we didn't close the doors on the other bedrooms in that hallway. And this hallway is like a gauntlet going down through there. So, you know, we we learned that from now on you need to make things look uniform because, you know what, if if Peralta, the guy that shot Kevin, had opened those other doors, we probably would have heard that coming and we would have been prepared for him when he opened our door. Knowing the doors, yeah. So, so Kevin, with you, your right arm's up, you get shot twice. Did you know you were shot at the time or did it take you a couple seconds to realize, ouch? No, I didn't realize, I mean... Talking about slowing down, I mean, everything was going about a 1,000 miles an hour. And then when I decided to get back on, lay back and get on the floor, that's when everything slowed down. I couldn't get down fast enough. It kind of went into slow motion. And, and that was only for a couple of seconds. And then the shooting stopped, or at least the shooting there at the uh, bedroom stopped. 
And I remember Murphy running over, opening the door. And, um, but before that, I'm laying there on the ground. And during the shooting, I'm looking up at the, the door, which is right next to me. And I can see bullets going from both directions. Len Piper behind me was shooting at the bad guy through the door. The bad guy was shooting at me through the door. And I'm sitting there looking up and all this um, splintering is going on with the door. You know, this is right when I was telling Murphy I wanted excitement, but I didn't want it all in like 10 seconds. You know? You got your career full of excitement. Yeah, in pretty short order. Um, when did you first notice the blood? Um, well, after Murphy walked out the door and was chasing Peralta, um, I went to, I was trying to get up and I looked over. I was known for wearing Hawaiian shirts and stuff. And I saw my Hawaiian shirt with my arm there, but I was trying to get up. And what had happened, it blew that humerus bone out the back and severed the radial nerve. So from my elbow down, it was paralyzed and my arm wasn't moving. And I'm thinking, damn, that's, I realized that's my arm because it's got the Hawaiian shirt attached to it, but it wasn't responding. So I was able to get up after that. And um, the first thing that came to my mind is, okay, who's in the house? I didn't know. Everybody after the shooting took off running down the hallway and outside. Um, and I'm laying in there by myself and I'm getting up and I'm thinking, help. Who's in the house? There might still be bad guys in the house. So I start walking. I mean, I'm bleeding like a stuck pig. And then I'm walking from bedroom to bedroom, clearing the house as I go down the hallway. And the uh, local, local police that were in there investigating was asking me, what the hell are you doing? I said, I was clearing the house. I didn't know who was in there and who wasn't. Well, and I think something... Like I said, it, people listening too. One of the things you train too is we call it strong hand, weak hand, right? So you still you, your strong hand is your dominant hand when you shoot with. But for situations like this, you were right-handed, right, Kevin? Yes. So you, but you had to transition now. Obviously, your right arm's paralyzed. You have to transition to your left hand. What right. was that feeling like when now you do something you don't normally do, which is now you've got the weapon in your left hand. You can't use your right arm. You know what's just going? What's going through your head at this point? Even as you're clearing the rooms, are are you worried about bleeding out? Are you worried about passing out? What what's now, happening? I could feel the the blood dripping down onto my leg, and I had on jeans, and they were getting soaked. Um, I was just more concerned with the threat and not knowing who was in there and who wasn't until I got down to the end of the hallway, and then I saw Rafa, the informant, laying there. He was laying on his right side, facing away from me. And when I roll him over, he had this gaping wound in his throat, about where your Adam's apple is. But I mean, this was about the size of a, of a baseball. The hole was where the he had been hit with a 357 Magnum. Well, Steve, you were, I mean, so when uh, Kevin gets set and he goes down, what are you doing at this point too? Because you were armed um, with actually a Colt a submachine gun, right? Right. So I, I like to give him a hard time because he was in the closet. <laughs> but there's nothing that he could have done from where he was at because the undercover and the, and the CI were down the hallway. He could have shot through the wall, but then he would have he had the you possibility. You would have had no to, visibility as to who was in the hallway. Exactly. But I always give him a hard time and say, damn, you're hiding in the closet the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, See, even with stuff like this going on, you still got a sense of humor. 
Well, you got to, because if you did this shit, it would drive you crazy. But, and what I like to tell Kevin is I told him I'd be behind him all the way, right? <laughs> I but might have him pushed behind his men way back there. Yeah, yeah. have him pushed out there. But uh, So what do you do, Steve? Yeah, I mean, um, these shots go down, the shots are going on. Because uh, you obviously, I think when you and I have talked before, you can't engage because of the proximity of the good guys, and you're not sure where the bad guy is. So what do you do at this point? Well, you, you see Kevin laying there, and and, uh, and what I remember is, is uh, telling, you know, we grabbed a pill off the bed. We're trying to use that to help stop the flow of blood on Kevin's arm. And Lynn, I think, may have still been firing rounds, or he may have just finished firing rounds through the door. And what I remember is Kevin looking up, and I'm going, dude, you're going to be okay. We'll get you some help in here. And he says, go get him. Go get the son of a bitch. So at that point, that's when I shouldered up the SMG. And, you know, we're taught tactics to help us survive. And one of those is, is we call it slicing the pie. And that's when you're coming around a corner, you just slowly go around. Well, those tactics went out the door that day. It was, I jerked that door open and you, you're right out in the hallway, ready to advance. And, you know, you're coming down that hallway. And, and at that point, Rafa was still on his feet and he was standing there holding his throat or trying, you know, he's trying to stop the blows, the blood from coming out. That's what he's trying to do. Uh, and he's just got this look of terror on his face. And Pete is still laying on the floor and he had, Pete was a tough guy, you know, so what I'm getting ready to say in no way takes away from uh, his bravery and, and uh, you know, all the things that he had endured because of that. But he mentally had lost it at that moment. You know, he's got an ankle gun on because that's what Pete carried, a little five-shot ankle gun, believe it or not, in Miami in the late 1980s. Uh, but his he's screaming. What I remember is him yelling at me to, you know, get Rafa help, get Rafa help. But I was like Kevin. We didn't know where the bad guys were. So I, I bypass Rafa, make a left to the front door. I come out on the front porch and I'm shouldered up and I'm just, I'm looking for targets to be quite honest with you. I remember looking across the street and this is a residential neighborhood, but across the street was an industrial area. And there was this, I don't know, eight foot, 10 foot cement block wall to, I guess like a sound barrier to give the, the neighborhood, the residential neighborhood, a little bit of privacy. And this massive gunfight had just taken place, you know, and people outside heard it. And I'm shouldered up scanning for targets. And I look up and all of a sudden I see these heads come up on that wall, looking over to see what's going on. And your attention is immediately drawn to them. So you aim at them. And it, it was like, uh, uh, what's the little cartoon character that so-and-so was here, you know, that you always Kilroy see was here. Yeah. yeah. It's like Kilroy. All of a sudden those heads just boop. They dropped down. It was like whack-a-mole. You know, the, the heads would, <laughs> would dip down because I'm pointing a, a rifle at them. Anyway, I look off to the right, and the guy that shot Rafa is trying to make an escape. Now, Peralta, the guy that shot Kevin, is already gone. I don't see him anywhere, and I didn't even know there was a third guy out there at the time. So uh, I psyched down on, uh, I think his name was Sanchez, Octavio Sanchez. Right. And... Uh, He's, we later learned he had full-blown HIV, so his body was already deteriorating. He could not run. He just kind of... But you didn't know it at the time, though, he had it, right? Right, right. And so he's kind of hobbling down the sidewalk, and he's, he's off the... He's not on the house sidewalk. He's already made a right trying to get through the neighborhood. And I aimed in on him and, and was going to shoot him, but, you know, you, I could see his hands, and he didn't have a weapon. There did was, you see him drop the weapon or get rid of it? Or did when you just got up on him, he was just unarmed at that point? He was unarmed. And this would have been, I don't know, maybe a 20-yard shot. It, wasn't, it wouldn't have been a hard shot to make. 
but you do have the presence of mind to see if you don't see a weapon, you're not entitled to shoot that person. I mean, that's what separates us from the bad guys, right? We don't murder people. But but the hard thing to control at that point, too, is you've got all of this adrenaline going through your system. I mean, it's it's having to consciously slow yourself down to, to have that trigger discipline to say, you know, check the hands, right? That's where the, yep. a lot of the threats come from. And with there's nothing there. Steve, that had to be an awful lot of restraint at that point because somebody's just shot your partner, shot the informant, and now you got one of the shooters there in your sights. Well, you know, what kicks in is your training. So before DEA, I'd been a cop for almost 12 years, and, and I'd been on DEA for a couple of years by now. So your your training kicks in. Just That's the only way I can explain it. And uh, ordered him to stop, and then I advanced on him. And, you know, of course, later saw the his revolver laying on the sidewalk there where he had dropped it in the yard. How close, how close was the revolver to where you eventually uh, took him into custody? I, th I think he dropped it where the the the, ha the sidewalk leading into the house intersected with either the sidewalk or the street. I think it was laying right there in that corner is the way I remember it. And he was probably already 10 feet away from it, you know, trying to make his escape. Uh, so I, I ran up on him and, you know, kept a safe distance, but ordered him to the ground. And about that time, Pete had regained his his uh, senses. Faculties, yeah. Yeah. And he came running out to assist, so we we took uh, Sanchez down there on the sidewalk, cuffed him up. Um, Let me ask you both a question here, too, and Kevin, starting with you. You know, because this is a tough thing. People don't realize, too, you, you deal with death a lot of times in law enforcement. I've seen my share of bodies. You guys have. Had you ever seen anybody dying in front of your eyes like that from a gunshot? No. no. Not, not that I recall. So, So when you see that and you look at Rafa, did you instantly know? Yeah, he's just not going to make it. Yeah, I. that's my first impression when I saw how big the hole was and he was gasping for air and gurgling, you know, blood and stuff. So I thought this guy's not going to make it. I'm just going to try and make him as comfortable as possible. So, so here and, you are. And here's the significant thing about that. Here's Kevin with two forty-five rounds to his right arm. He can't even about use to his say right he's arm. He's injured taking care of somebody else that's injured exactly. now. Exactly. Well, and then. I forget who it was, another agent come walking in, and I was starting to get a little concerned about the amount of blood I was losing, so I had him go over, and I remember telling him to grab a dish towel that was hanging there and bring it to me. So I kind of tied, it wasn't really a tourniquet, I was just applying pressure on my wounds, so I didn't bleed out. With you know, the, and not to, I, I don't want to talk over Kevin here, and I don't want to take away from his story, but after we took Peralta, I mean, uh, Sanchez into custody, I walked over to my G car and uh, you had to turn the engine on to get the radio to work. And our radios were all covert radios, so that everything's hidden in the trunk and all you have is a microphone that connects under your seat. And so I called Miami base to call for backup, you know, and ambulances and so forth. And I couldn't remember the address where we were, but we always <laughs> prepared these operational plans before we'd go out and you left it with the base radio operator. And so I'm telling my call sign back then was Carib 7 and because uh, we were the Caribbean group. And I remember the, the operator telling me to stand by. And finally, the third time I came up, I told him, you know, this is an emergency. Stop what you're doing and, and listen. And he did, he's, and he's, go ahead, creep seven. And I told him, you know, there's been a shooting agent down. Uh, we need two ambulances, need some backup. And he asked me the address. And I said, it's the address on the ops plan. And he asked me that three times. I said, it's the effing 
address on the you can say plan. It's a, look, we've done that before. It's the fuck. That's what you do these things for. It's on the fucking plan. Well, then I looked at the house and I saw the number on the house and the address came back to me. So I gave him the address. Well, the reason I bring that up is because I talked to agents later that heard that radio call and they said, you know, you know, weren't you inside with Kevin when he got shot? And I said, yeah. And they said, when you came up on radio to call for backup, you sounded like you were just calling in for a tag check, you know, or, it, you know, there was no excitement in your voice. They, they could tell was a little bit of urgency, but there's no, uh, you know, like they like to portray on television, the cops are going, give me some help out here, give me some help out here, you know. The, so I attribute that not to anything special I did. I think it's the training that you've received over the years to help yeah. you maintain your composure at the time, I mean, look at Kevin. Holy cow! This, I wasn't shot. He's shot twice, and he's in there helping another guy that got shot. So there's, uh, I, th I think that's where the professionalism and the training comes in. And I'm sure Kevin's psychological background had a lot to do with him maintaining his faculties that day. Yeah. First of all, using that degree to go, what the fuck did I just get myself into? I'm going to go back to being a psychologist. <laughs> well, not only that, but the Marine Corps training too. I think had a lot to do with it. Just instinctually, you. I mean, had I not reacted when I did, I mean, that one bullet could have hit me in the head just right, as easy yeah. as go by my right ear. And it just at the at the split second, I thought, I got to get down. And I went down, and that was just as he was shooting. They always say that they will shoot at the gun. So I had held my, my gun out the door there, so he was shooting at that. Luckily, my body was off, you know, further in the bedroom. And uh, I think that saved Marine your life. Corps training also saved my ass, you know. So from the, first, from the time the first shots are fired until you hear the sirens, you know, and obviously Steve's calling back, how long, how long did it feel like it took for the, for the backup to get there and the ambulance to get there? It seemed to me it was, it was pretty quick. I remember uh, they also called in a helicopter to medevac. They were going to take me. And I told him, I said, no, take him. Look at his wounds. It's a lot, hell of a lot worse than mine. Um, so they ended up taking him on the medevac. But I remember them getting there really quick. How how long do you think it took, Steve? Because you went out to radio for help. Was that the first call that went out for help, or did the surveillance team call for help before you did? No, that that was the first call. The uh, surveillance team was just starting to come in. Um, you know, to this... You got to remember that they were sitting way out on yeah. the perimeter, so it took them a while to get there. But now I've, you know, I've called base, and it, I'm not kidding you. It seemed like a matter of seconds before I heard sirens. I hadn't even had time to go back in the house yet, you know. So Pete has control of Sanchez, who's in custody. We're hearing sirens coming, and you know this, Morgan, as well as anybody. Anybody that's ever been in a, a fight or a shooting or a dangerous situation and you need help, the sirens is one of the most comforting sounds oh, you yeah. could ever hear. <laughs> but there's one problem, Steve, and this is what it gets back to between Thursday and Friday. You are now a big hillbilly redneck white dude armed with a submachine gun with absolutely no raid jacket, no identification, standing in the middle of the street, and the police are showing up. Yeah, it was. The only idea I had was I had my badge on a lanyard that I, we used to wear down inside our shirts. Hey, you can I, buy those at Disney. Please, come right. on. <laughs> well, I mean, we were it's Miami Vice, so that's how you wear, wear your badge right then. Right? 
So I've got that out, but, and I see the cruiser and these are, you know, the streets in, in South Florida are straight. They're not like they are where we live now with lots of curves. And I mean, you can see, you could probably see a mile down this straight street and I can see a Metro Dade marked unit coming my way with lights flashing and the siren, siren blaring. And, uh, and I'm standing in the street holding this machine gun and all of a sudden I see smoke from his tires and he's stopping. And I'm like, what the hell, you know? You can see me out here, and then I realize I'm standing in the middle of the street holding a machine gun with no police identification on. So I lay the machine gun in the street, and I raised my hands as high as I could, made sure my badge was hanging out, and then they, they started advancing in at that point. And, and was that the first time you'd ever had cops pointing guns at you? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> That's another episode. We'll have to get into that. Yeah. Well, I meant while you were on duty, though, had you had another instance where um, – you were uh, had to identify yourself as a friendly when uh, you were getting approached by uniforms. Um, not that I remember. I don't remember that right. ever happening before. So, right. so the cops are starting to show up. You know, Kevin, where are you at at this time? You hear the sirens coming. Where, where are you at at this time? Are you still in the living room then with Rafa? You stayed in the house, right? Yes, I stayed in there uh, until they took him out, and then I walked. I t I told them. I said, take him first. And then I told him, I said, I can walk. And I walked out to, I remember walking out to the ambulance. Murphy was there. And I remember Murphy telling, uh, we had the backup GS there that he goes, hey, this is my partner. I'm riding in the ambulance with him going to the hospital. And it only turned out, I think there was, what, maybe a mile away or two miles away. Yeah, it wasn't was far. The hospital. It wasn't very far. Yeah. So what what are they doing to you at this point now, Kevin? You walk, I mean, you walk out to the ambulance um, cause I think, why, why did you walk out to the ambulance? Were you afraid that if you laid down, something might happen to you? Or did you just want to walk out because it pissed you off and you weren't going to let this guy get to you? I'm not trying to read into this. I'm just saying most people would have said, okay, Hey, start working on me. Put me on a stretcher, carry me out. But you walked out. Why? I think I just wanted to let everybody know that I was all right. You know, we're, we're tough guys. We're invincible. Yeah. <laughs> 10 feet tall and bulletproof. I thought that too when I went through the academy. Yeah. <laughs> so what so you walked out to the ambulance. What they start how did what did they start doing to you the uh, EMTs? They just had me lay down on on the gurney and um I think you know they put what oxygen mask on me and started applying more pressure to the arm. And again, like I said it was only a couple of miles before I knew it we were at the hospital. And that's then uh the big boss the in Miami division at the time was Tom Cash, and he shows up there in the emergency room, and he asked me if there was anything he could do for me. He talked about a sense of humor. I said, yeah, a six-pack of Bud Light would taste real good about now. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he goes, you're on. And he finally paid up about three or four years later. Oh, <laughs> oh did he? <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> After we had one of those range days, I had to remind him. I said, remember when I was in the emergency room and you said you'd, you'd give me some, you know, a six-pack of Bud Light? I said, I still haven't got that yet. So he ordered a couple pictures of beer. So uh, they wheel you in. How long is it before you arrive in the hospital till they take, until they take you into surgery? Uh, they did a bunch of x-rays. The... The one upper, the humerus bone was just blown completely out of the back of my arm. There's so it had just it had physically broken your bone in half, right? Blown yeah. some of it. So yeah, your it arm was, was totally just dangling splint. there. You had no connectivity bone-wise from between your shoulder and your elbow, right? 
Exactly. Actually, uh, the doctors at the time I had been working out like a maniac, and I had just lifted or bench pressed 300 pounds for the first time, like about a week before that. And the doctor said, had I not been doing that, there was a good chance it would have blown my arm completely off. Yeah, and hit. Uh, obviously, it hit a couple of the uh, arteries over there too, or it came very close to the way you were bleeding out. Right? Did it nick an artery, or were you in danger of bleeding out? Well, the doctor said I probably would have bled out had it hit an artery, and he had no idea, because I have no idea how you took those two gunshot wounds and yeah. missed the artery. Wow. It wasn't so, your day to die, brother. Yeah. So how long how long did it take before they get you into surgery now? A couple hours, three hours? Um, it's probably a couple hours. What do you they, remember they, going into surgery? Pardon me? What do you remember when you were going into surgery? What were you thinking? Um. I was talking at the time I had a roommate and he was there and I was, my parents were still alive at that time. So I had him or I told him, I said, don't tell them, call my parents. Don't tell them I've been shot. Tell them I was in a car accident and broke my arm or some, some bullshit like that. Lying to I your knew, parents. <laughs> I, knew, I knew they would, uh, you know, kind of freak yeah. out and stuff because they were kind of reluctant for me to have that job to begin with. <laughs> Well, um, so do you know how long you were in surgery? Uh, several hours, I think. I don't, I don't remember exactly. But they had to get, with the first, I had five surgeries on the arm over the course of probably a year and a half. Uh, the, first, the first one was just to clean out all the bone fragments and the bullets and everything out of the arm. Um, you, have, you have two... Um, or you have an ulnar nerve in your arm and a radial nerve in the upper arm. The radial nerve is totally severed. So, like I was saying earlier, the um, my from my elbow down, my arm is pretty much paralyzed. To this day? No. Um, the other surgeries, and, and I was shocked. I didn't know they even did this, but they went into my wrist. Uh, well, let me go back. The first one was the emergency surgery. The second one was the major surgery um, where they went in. I have a steel plate up here about 10 inches long with about 12 screws in it. Um, that's but you set surgery. off a lot of metal detectors in the airport, huh? I, I have before. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then they were able to go and from my wrist cut tendons and do what they call tendon transfers. They would cut the tendon, wrap it around my arm, and um, hook it up to, one of them went to my thumb, because that didn't work either, it wouldn't move, and then the other one they brought around the other side of my arm, hooked it up to the back of my hand, which controlled my fingers, so I was able to grasp things, which before I was not. And then they had to go into my hip, take a bunch of bone out, and do a bone graft into the upper arm. Wow. So but I, total, I had about five surgeries, I think. My understanding uh, is that when you went to the hospital, too, I mean, obviously, um, at this point, do you know about uh, Octavio? Do you know about uh, Peralta, you know, their status at that point? Had anybody told you that they got away, or what did you know about the other guys involved at that point? Yeah, the, um, after the first surgery, I was still at the Hialeah Hospital. Later on, they transferred me to Jackson Memorial. But after the first one, I was at the Hialeah Hospital, and that's where I had heard um, that they had 
apprehended uh, Sanchez, and then the guy driving the getaway car actually just went home that night. <laughs> so they had ran his tag and went to the address and picked him up. But the guy that shot me was still on the loose. So they had guards in my hospital room, both uh, Jacksonville Memorial and uh, Hialeah. Uh, my understanding is that up... the guards weren't there just for your physical safety. It was also for your personal safety, because my understanding was <laughs> you might have had a couple girlfriends in play at the time there, did you, Kevin? <laughs> That's not a denial. Not a denial. I, uh, I was in the process of phasing one out and bringing the other one in. Um, and as luck would have it, all this happens. And, of course, they show up together at the hospital, I guess. And that, and they had, I don't know who gave them the order, but they said they're not not to be let in to see me, either one of them. Because you probably feared for your personal safety at that point. <laughs> oh, my goodness, man. Even, even with this going on. Hey, but, but while this is going on, what when did the – reality set in to start thinking, and not that it was reality, but did you think your career was over at that point? Did you think, you know, I'm going to be fixed up, they'll fix, patch me up, and then I'm, I'm out of DEA? Well, that's, no, that's, that was the furthest thing from my mind, but um, all the doctors and physical therapists and nurses were saying, you need to find another line of work. And I had only been on the job like a year, so I told them, I said, hell, I'm not even warmed up yet. Like, why are you talking like that, you know? And they said, well, you know, it might be safer for you to do something else. And I said, no, this is, I said, I love this job. <laughs> so I was not uh, going to let them deter me from uh, getting back on the job. So in order to do that, I, when I was off, I would train myself to shoot left-handed and to write left-handed so I could get back on the job. And, and physically, we had a fitness test back then. They don't have those anymore, but um, I was able to do one arm, one arm push-ups when we took the fitness test and do enough to where I passed it. Yeah, Murph, you were talking about how impressive that was. He was doing more one-arm push-ups than you were two-arm push-ups, you wuss. Yes, he was. <laughs> I'm proud of that boy for doing it, too. That was, you know, and it's just motivational for everybody else to see that. You know, because he's he's coming in, he's still on he's still on sick leave. You know, because he's still going through operations, and and you gotta understand, you know, these these PT tests for every six months. And the old guys, if you didn't pass it, there was no retribution. You know, it was just it was more of a motivational type thing to try to keep everybody in shape. Well, hell, the, part of it was was running. The old guys would come out, they'd walk the track smoking cigarettes. You know, because they're like, oh, I'm not running this. <laughs> You know, and here's the here's us young studs out there, and then you got Kevin over there doing all these one-handed push-ups, and the old guys are looking at him like freaking show off. <laughs> He's just showing off because he could do that, you know. But it was a lot of jealousy there, and but there was also a lot of pride because everybody saw, you know, Kevin's determination to get back on the job. Where did that come from, Kevin? Was that you know where did you, where did you decide you know hey fuck these guys I, I, they're, I'm not going to let these shooters and these other guys determine what my career was. I mean, was it because you just wanted to do this line of work or was it more just personal as like, now nah, I'm sorry, I'm not, like you said, you'd only been on the job for a year. I'm not going out like this. Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. Um, just kind of the pride of the Marine Corps training. Um, you know, a Marine would not just walk away like that. If you're able to get in the fight, you're going to get in the fight. Wow. Um, 
when was, how long did it take you before you could actually, uh, you know, before you got out of the hospital the first time, how long were you in? Um, I was in, I think it was two, two weeks where they did, well, they did the first surgery in Hialeah, then they moved me to Jackson Memorial. And I think I spent two weeks in there, if I remember right, when they did all the, the, uh, fixing in the arm as far as the plates, steel plates and screws and all that. And then I was off work for seven months uh, before I was able to go back again. And then I, the following year, I had to go in and have one of those tendon transfers done. Then about six months later, I went in again and had the other tendon transfer done. Um, so I was off probably a total of a couple of years. Wow. So, but were you doing anything at that? Were, were you like on uh, uh, medical leave or were you allowed to do anything in the office like casework or, you know, do stuff? No, I was not. Um, if you were on workman's comp, you were on workman's comp and. You're off. What was that? How did that? How did that make you feel? I mean, I, it sounds like I said, how did that make you feel? You know, but how did that make you feel? You, you've only been on the job for two years. Now you're off. You're off on workers' comp and medical for longer than you've been on DEA at this point. Yeah, well, I really didn't look at it that way. I, I just looked at it as I was going back to work, and they weren't going to stop me. <laughs> what did you have to go through to get clearance? To because, you know, I'm sitting here thinking. If I were sitting on a review board and I'm going, okay, here we got an agent that's come in, highly commendable action, you know, bravery, you know, just off the charts, but you've got a right arm that's basically been blown to smithereens, you're right-handed, you can't use your right hand anymore, you can only use your left hand. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, what did you have to go through before somebody to go, yeah, okay, we'll let we'll let you back on the job? Um, they just... Primarily the uh, approval of my doctor. DEA had a doctor up in headquarters that was, uh, how, do you, how do you say that? A joke. <laughs> I think he had that job because he couldn't work at any place else. Um, and he, I remember him specifically. I was standing in Steve Widener's office, and we were talking, and my doctor had approved me to go back to work, my surgeon, but the DEA doctor had not. I didn't even know that I had to have his approval to begin with, um, but he was telling my supervisor that I couldn't go back to work until he approved me, and I kind of went off on my boss there. I'm like, who the hell does he think he is? Here I have a surgeon that has been treating me for you know over a year, well, the first time was seven months, and, um, you know, they, he, he, uh, basically said he had to do the approval. So I was able to get my surgeon to call him and talk to him and tell him, yeah, he's ready to go back to work. He can do this. He's passed all the tests. There's no reason you can't keep him off of it. And so he finally approved me to come back to work. And that was two years after the shooting, basically. Uh, no, the first time it was only seven months. That you got cleared to come back to work? Yes. Wow. And then you had your other tendon transfers you were talking about. So you had to be off for a while for those? Right. Usually about three, three months, I think for each one. All right. Well, let's talk about the shooter then, because, um, he's like you say, you're under guard. He's still out and about. When did you hear about his capture? Um, I think it was a couple of weeks later. We had agents go up. He, we found out he went to New York. That's where his family was from. 
and uh, excuse me, we had a uh, a couple weeks. They were able to put the pressure on him. They were kicking doors in up in New York um, and telling him, you know, it's not going to be a pretty sight if we get to him before you have him turn himself in. So I think they scared him enough where he finally, two weeks later, turned himself in. And I was able to fly up there and identify him. They have what's called a removal hearing in court. Uh, so they can transport him back to wherever he broke the law. Um, so they flew me up, to, and I identified him in court. That was only a couple of weeks after that, after he had uh, been captured. What was that like, seeing him? Well, I tell you, the DEA had a uh, a small jet, and they flew me up there and flew me back in that, and we brought him back with us. And I was tempted to see if he could fly. <laughs> <laughs> but I stayed away from him because I wasn't sure what I would do. But uh, Yeah, and so you came on what year again, Kevin? 1988. And three years before. The reason I'm saying that is it wasn't that long ago before that, three years before that, when uh, Kiki Camarino was kidnapped and killed, you know, down in Mexico. So right. I'm thinking was D, would that it seemed like, not that they wouldn't have gone to the same extent, but it seemed to me as like they weren't going to allow something like this to happen again to another one of their agents, right? I mean, um, there was like this sense of urgency. We're going to find this guy, and like you said, we can do it the easy way or the hard way. You know, the easy way is you come turn yourself in. The hard way, we find you. He's probably going to um, get ventilated and die of lead poisoning. Exactly. You know, too, the, uh, I'll tell you what DEA Miami's response was, and it was in the entire agency is... Uh, because Peralta was on the run, we went to 12-hour shifts, seven days a week, the entire division. So you dropped whatever cases you were working on, uh, and we created these, uh, I guess we'd call them raid teams. And so we might have, you know, we had 200 agents in Miami at the time. So you might have 10 different teams out going to addresses, for, you know, anything associated with Peralta, whether it's family members, job sites, hangouts, friends, whatever, you know, and, and the list would continually grow. Plus, there was tips coming in from the community. And so the goal, the, the responsibility of these raid teams was just continually doing entries. So you'd go to an address. You might hit the same address two or three times in one shift, in a 12-hour shift. And you'd go there, and, and, you know, the first time you had to be a little... Um, diplomatic, but at the same time, you're being forceful because one of our own had been shot. And it got to the point where, you know, when the raid team would come screaming down the street, the people in these in these homes, you know, whether it was an apartment or condo or house or whatever, they they would hear you and see you coming, and they'd come and open the do, you know open the door. He's not here, but come on in, take a look, because they didn't want you breaking their doors down, their yeah. furniture, <laughs> things like that. And I'm pretty sure it was probably the same way up in New York. That's where all the pressure came from. But the whole point of that is that it's a testament to the agency, the DEA agency, and the fact that everybody dropped everything because one of our own had been injured. Ke Kevin, when you saw that kind of activity going on and that they were doing this for you, you know, I hate to say sound like the psychology could have them make you feel, but, you know, when, you're, when you see the response that was, that came out of this, you know, did you feel like it's, guys, you know, like you're overdoing it or that's a little bit too much or were you like, Fucking A, I want to be right there. I'll kick in some doors with you. Well, 
of course, uh, the last um, would be more my response. But um, um, what what was your question again? Uh? Well, it's just how, you know, and like I said, I say, I hate to say, like again, how did it make you feel? But but when you saw this entire response, the way like Steve said, everybody drops everything and they're going after this guy. You know, what, what, how does that make you feel at that point? Did you feel like, ah, oh, guys, you're you know, you're overdoing it, or? You know, no, or were you... actually, I remember uh, when even when I was in the hospital, they gave me a DEA radio so I could hear all the traffic going on, and we've notified or we've obtained this address for this guy, and then you hear the team responding, you know, and then they come back on and say that results were negative, or I was kind of shocked that I felt kind of bad that I was creating all this activity, you know. I guess I felt a little guilty, but I also wanted to be out there too. You felt guilty about getting shot? Well, yeah, I don't know how to explain that, but <laughs> well, I, just, I mean, well, all the all the attention seemed to be going on because I was the one that got shot. And... Yeah, but you uh, know, Morgan, you were a cop. You know, it's going to be like that anywhere in the United States, isn't it? Oh, it, it, you know, but that's what I'm saying is that, but, and the reason doing it is that here's the thing, if we're just all talking together, we get it. But it really, for a lot of the folks listening, it's really about letting them understand what it's like, because you you do feel guilty. It's like, guys, you know, I, you go, it's almost like you want to apologize. I, I apologize the fact you guys got to spend your weekends now. You're probably missing birthday parties, you know, and doing stuff and you're doing this on my behalf. You're going, you feel bad about this. But then if you're on the other side of it, you go, whatever it takes, pal, we're going to go find this guy. And actually, um, a lot of it I didn't know was going on, and people that were involved for years after I had gotten shot, I'd meet agents and stuff, and they said, oh, yeah, I worked on your case when you got shot, and I had no idea. Even especially the guys up in New York, um, a lot of them I didn't know, and a lot of them I didn't know what, even if I did know, but... Um, they yeah. had worked on my case all the way up in New York. Well, there is one piece of good news, though, because even though your boss stiffed you on the six-pack of beer, my understanding is some enterprising South Miami detective did smuggle you in some alcoholic beverages into a into a hospital room. Can you confirm that there, Special Agent Stevens? <laughs> <laughs> and not, not only that, one of the uh, secretaries and my boss also had a cooler of beer in my room <laughs> at one point. <laughs> Now, was that advised against by your doctors, or did you tell them? No, they did not know. <laughs> well, he, he was on a heroin drip, you know, for the pain, <laughs> just so you know. Uh, I, I tell you, when I had broken my nose in the State Patrol Academy, they gave me a morphine injection, uh, basically into the nose, so they could reset my nose. I have never been, uh, I don't know how to describe that feeling, but it's like I have never been... Uh, I thought maybe I was in the fifth dimension or something. It's like I've, that was just the weirdest feeling ever to have that much morphine in your body. Oh, I, I hate that. It's like an out of body experience. So if I don't have to have anything like that, I, I just had back surgery and I told him I didn't, I didn't want any of that after the fact. So you're off the heroin then, right? Yeah. (laughs) I'm clean now. Good to know. Good to know, Kevin. Well, so um, what? let's talk about the disposition um, of the three guys involved in this. You've got the driver, and then you've got the, uh, the two shooters. Um, what, hap- what, what was the final disposition on their criminal cases? Do you remember? Um, the two shooters each got uh, 27 years for shooting me, and then uh, that was a, a federal charge. 
Was there a trial or did they plea? Um, no, there was a trial. Uh, the other ones got uh, mandatory life, the other, or the two. For the state charges for killing the informant, got mandatory life. Now, Diaz, the guy that was driving the getaway car, he ended up acquitted. He had, when it went to court, he told uh, the judge that he just happened to be driving by the house that day, and some guy came running out that he didn't know and jumped in his car, and the jury believed him. <laughs> so, wow. so he he kind of walked. But bullshit. Now, well, now there was. Uh, you remember what happened with the uh, district attorney's office? Uh, Janet Reno was the district attorney in Dade County at that time. Do you remember that, Kevin? I remember her being the district attorney. Do you remember her response to the shooting? No. The way I remember it was uh, they looked at potentially filing charges at you for shooting at those guys. And and I understand to a point where the district attorney's office has to investigate it to make sure there's no malfeasance of office, that everything was above board. But the way it was coming across us troops on the ground was that they were coming after you which really pissed off the entire federal agency down there. Well, that explains your Mr. Reno comment from a previous podcast episode there, Steve. Yeah, I, I don't have uh, a lot of respect for her. So so what's, what's the story in that, that they were looking at charging Kevin for firing at the guys that were shooting at him? Well, you know what happens is they go into a grand jury and, and they ask the grand jury to investigate it. And I, and I completely understand that because they got to make sure that the cops just didn't kill an innocent person, which rarely, right. rarely, rarely happens, regardless of whatever all this anti-law enforcement crap that's going on out there right now, regardless of what you think, you know, that's extremely rare. And so I understand that they have to do the investigation, but when the district attorney is pushing it personally to get in front of the grand jury to pursue it because she wasn't sure she believed the stories coming out of the federal agents. That's where the problem came in for me. Put, put the facts up there and let the grand jury decide. People have got their own brains. It's, it's like now we want to let the media, we want to let anybody else tell us what to think. Just put the facts out there yeah. and then let the, the grand jurors decide. And they decided that, you know, Kevin and, and all of us were cleared in that. But it just really rubbed us the wrong way. So you had you not heard that before, Kevin? No, I don't recall that at all. Yeah. Wow. It wasn't a good time. So uh, how long did that take to resolve itself, Steve? It wasn't long. It, you know, that's it's something that, like in Dade County, it's so busy. There's a grand jury sitting, I think. All the time. Yeah. yeah. So I think it was because of the 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 seriousness of the situation, you know, you've got Rafa was killed, Javier, uh, not Javier, Kevin is uh, laying in the hospital and you got these guys in custody and, you know, looking at uh, potential death sentences because Rafa was killed. So it bumped it up on the priority list and they got it in the grand jury in a, in a pretty timely manner. But it just it just really ticked off uh, everybody in our office. I mean, they, they would come in and take your statement and they were grilling you like you're a suspect. You know, there was no professional courtesy given whatsoever. I just didn't, none of it sat well with me. Hey, so let's, this is interesting too, because you've hit upon a thing too. So after a shooting, Kevin, what is DEA's policy? So you've been involved in a shooting, you fired your weapon, you've obviously been injured. Um, how does DEA, because they have to investigate it, they've got their own, do their own shooting review. What's that called? How does that process work? Oh, geez. 
it was a long time ago. Um, like you say, they do have like a shooting team that does an investigation. I can remember them coming down and interviewing me. Um, I'm not sure who else they interviewed. I'm sure everybody that was involved. Uh, but I also remember them coming back in and clearing me, telling me that I was cleared, everything was justified, and not to worry about it. What what kind of questions did they ask you during you know during the interviews? What were they honing in on? Oh, it's been a long time. Uh, oh, and a few beers, I know, <laughs> and <yeah>. Uncle Al's. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think. Well, I know one was. Do you have your vest on? And I didn't because we were out making a traffic stop with another agent. So I don't, I think Murphy was one of the few people that had, he had the machine gun. You had your vest too, I think, didn't you? No, nah, just the machine gun. Oh, didn't have, and I had, I had no vest, but at least I had my service weapon. And then Lynn behind me, the guy that was shooting at the bad guy, uh, from behind me, he only had his five shot because he was out there with us and had left his regular gun. I think we went to lunch and then we, somebody, uh, a fellow agent got on the radio and wanted to know if somebody was close enough to help him do a traffic stop and we were there. So we, we did that. How about you, Steve? Did you get interviewed? Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember specific questions, but it was just basically, you know, telling the events chronologically, um, what you heard, what you saw, what you did, you know, what Kevin do, what Lynn do. Um, it, it didn't, it, it probably took, I'm going to guess maybe an hour, maybe a little bit longer to do the interview, but it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like confrontational being that, and it wasn't like being interviewed by the district attorney's office for Dade County. How did that, t tell us about that. How was that, how long did that take and, you know, how did that go down? Uh, for the state part of it, they wanted, uh, they wanted us to uh, provide depositions. And in federal agencies, we don't do that. So we refused to do it. And that's probably where a little bit of the animosity started because they're used to people coming in, you know, you're out of court, but you're, and you're giving a statement, but you're under oath when you give that statement. And you know, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office stepped up and said, no, federal agents don't do that. So it was more of, a, I guess, an investigative interview. You know, nothing was under oath. But I think the fact that, you know, they probably thought, well, you feds think you're better than everybody else. That wasn't it at all. It's just, you know, our policy says we don't give dep sworn depositions. So, uh, and, it, and it wasn't, I don't remember that it was uh, Metro Dade detectives. I think it was investigators from the District Attorney's Office. But uh, and, and regardless, whichever it was, I don't recall, uh, whichever it was, was under orders from the district attorney on what she wanted covered and what she wanted answered. And so I want, to, you know, I want you to get to the bottom of this. You know, I'm tired of these people shooting people, innocent people, that kind of stuff. I don't know that she said that, but that's the way it came across to us. Yeah. So not not a great interview. Um, no, by the... you didn't make friends through that one. I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, so, Kevin, going back to that, though, so they, they took them federal on shooting you, but uh, I know that they was was there an ability at that time or if you remember for them to also take them federal on the murder charges since it was part of that? Or do, was there a do you remember any kind of discussion to say, no, we're going to let you guys take the murder charge and we're going to take the federal charge? I don't recall any specific 
conversation that was had to de determine that. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't recall. That's no, okay. But um, did you end up testifying uh, at trial? Yes. Um, just kind of walk people through what's it like to be sitting there in the courtroom with the guy who shot you and basically nearly blew your arm off. Well, that's not fun, but I was able to at least give him the look that I wanted to the whole time. But what what amazes me is how these people get up there and swear, you know, they're sworn in and everything, and then they just sit there and lie. That um, Peralta, the guy that shot me, actually got up there and told the people that I started shooting at him first. And I had to explain all the training at Quantico. I went to, I shot over 5,000 rounds. I carried a Glock 19 um, and had, you know, shot 5,000 rounds through that during training and been trained on it. Um, actually, my class was the first one that was trained on the Glock. So they, they were trying to say, since there's really no safety on it, that I had had my finger on the trigger. And when he hit the door, it hit my gun that I accidentally shot, and that's he thought he was. I mean, it's amazed me how they could come up with all this crap. Smoking mirrors, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so, how long were you on the stand? Uh, pretty much one, I think one whole day, if I recall. How, how did you get treated by the defense attorney? Oh, uh, I remember one guy was a, a real smart ass, and I just, of course. When they get like that, you just kind of uh, shut up and don't say anything. So it's hard for them to get any kind of answers. I always enjoyed the the mental joust with the defense attorneys. I don't I don't know why, but it was always a challenge, and I I love to testify. Yeah, that that was I that was the it was a cat and mouse game. That's why it's called Game of Crimes too. Part part of the game is when you're testifying, they want you to get to say stuff. And one of the one of the hardest things for people to do is just to give a one word answer. You have that pregnant pause, and they think they have to fill it in. So they say, "Do you know the suspect?" And your reply is yes. And then they let the silence hang there. And then you're supposed to fill it in. And well, the more you talk, mm -hmm. the more they use against you or find discrepancies. Right. And so that was just fun. It's kind. Of, I remember a defense attorney. Just quick, di di I digress for a minute, but I remember being in a case. Not not a big case. I think it was an aggravated assault. You know, somebody took a shot at somebody. But the defense attorney. He's sitting there and he's setting up this this series of events and this question for me. And he takes about three or four minutes to, to, to set up this question and do stuff. And I looked at him and all I said was, can you repeat the question? And he got so pissed off. <laughs> I had the court reporter read it back, you know? You know, and, and that, that same tactic we use as investigators when, uh, especially when we're debriefing someone that you've, you've arrested and they've agreed to cooperate, or yeah, even when you first arrest them, You've read them, your, you've read them their rights. They say they're willing to talk to you. And you ask a question and they answer it. And, of course, they're lying to start with, you know, because they're trying to protect themselves. And you just sit there and look at them and don't say anything. And like you said, that pregnant pause, they feel compelled without you saying a word or making any. You're just sitting still looking at the person. And they feel compelled to continue talking. And it's amazing what people give up when you do that. Just sit there and listen. Just become a good listener. Uh yeah, and sometimes it's amazing what people will tell you if you just ask the right question, you know, and oh, yeah. you just got to ask one question, you know, uh, that's, a, that's, those are stories for another time too, but there, yeah. there's, I used to teach interview and interrogation and I actually ended up teaching out at the NSA and had taught the FBI, the Secret Service. I was actually teaching at the Mayflower Hotel, had, we had FBI, Secret Service, state and local 
the night Bill Clinton came on TV and goes, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss <laughs> Lewinsky, and I've never done anything wrong, whatever. So the next day in class, who do you think's busting the Secret Service chops? The FBI says, hey, what'd you think of that statement on TV? What'd you think of that? And all the Secret Service guys are basically giving them the fingers like, don't go there. Don't go there, pal. <laughs> <laughs> We're having fun. So um, the aftermath of this is, Let's talk mentally, too, because, um, you, you know, this is it's obviously it's not easy to shoot somebody and it's not easy to get shot either. Mentally, how is this? How have you dealt with this over the years? I mean, has it affected you? Has it not affected you? And if if it has, what kind of things affect you? Uh, mentally, no, I for some reason, I don't know if it's the psych background or the Marine Corps training, but mentally I've never had nightmares or anything like that. Physically, uh, I've had a lot more restrictions um, as to what I can do with my right arm. Um, what bothered me, I think, the most was I was not able to do certain things with my kids. I have two kids. When they were growing up, like my daughter and son playing baseball. I was able to help coach their teams and stuff, but it really limited me physically as far as throwing a ball. I can't do that very far. Um, football, I could, I can't throw a football. I used to love to play tennis. I can't play tennis anymore. Um, however, I was surprised when uh, one of the first times afterwards I went to play golf. I like I said earlier, I played a lot of golf and still try to. Um, but I went to hit, hit a golf ball, and my right arm completely slid off the club. And I'm thinking, damn, you know, why, why couldn't he have hit me in the left arm instead of the right arm? Because that's, you know, I'm right-hand dominant. And then when I the first time I went to swing a golf club, I thought, damn, I'm glad he hit me in the right arm because if you're right-handed, the left arm is really important in the golf swing. So I thought, well, at least one thing good came out of this. <laughs> Got <laughs> rid of a hell of a sense get, of humor. Did it get rid of that slice? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's just a lot of stuff like my right hand um, – I'm not able to do like the fine dexterity stuff. Um, it was, I am able to shoot and right, right handed again. I finally got to the point where I can do that, but there's just certain things, you know, sometimes you'll reach over to grab a glass and you have to focus on squeezing your fingers and your hand around that glass. So you don't drop it. Whereas just normally you would, you would do it and not even think twice about it. So, so, Steve, but you and I have talked about this, too. Yeah, you were talking about even when you were down there hunting Pablo and seeing all the stuff you did, you didn't have any of the PTSD, but you did talk about there is one reoccurring thing, because just to let folks know, um, when you're in law enforcement, and you, you guys didn't remember this, but several of the people I did, it's like you have that one recurring dream. It's not so much a nightmare, but it's the one thing that bothers you, and it's like you have something that happens, you pull your weapon out, and you can't pull the trigger. It just, you, no matter what you do, you can't pull the trigger. But, Steve, you had a different thing. Out of all the things, this was one of the things that probably bothered you the most, wasn't it? It was. It's, uh, you know, and, and I mean, that was in 1989 when Kevin got shot. Here we are in 2021. Um, I, you know, I'm certainly not claiming PTSD or anything like that. Uh, but I do occasionally uh, still have a recurring dream about Kevin getting shot that day. I haven't had it 
uh, now that we're in 2021, I probably haven't had that dream in over a year, maybe a couple years the last time, but it's something that never goes away. And it's uh, for people who are in occupations where you work with a, a partner, you know, especially if it's a life-threatening occupation, whether it's law enforcement, firefighters, military, you know, alignment out, you know, handling the high voltage lines and all that, uh, you develop a, a very strong bond that's uh, as close as brotherhood. So the fact that your partner's been shot out there and you weren't able to do anything about it, you know, it just it sticks with you for life. So I occasionally have that dream. You you sound like you feel like you have a little bit of guilt over that. Do you think you have? Do you? I mean, yeah. Do you? Why do you feel like you got guilt over that? Uh, just because it, your partner got shot and you didn't. I mean, just like Kevin's talking about, he felt guilty because everybody's out trying to catch the guy that shot him. You know, you just you just always. I mentioned earlier, you try to learn from mistakes that are made and and things that go bad. You you try to learn so that they don't you don't get yourself in that situation again. But uh, I don't know. It's just the fact that he got shot and I didn't. As, as weird as that sounds, you know, you have guilt feelings about that. Well, you know, they also call it survivor's guilt, too. You know, some of the folks feel that way, too. It's like nothing happened to me and you feel bad about it. Um, Kevin, there. so something good always needs to come out of a situation like this, like Steve talked about the training. Um, what kind of changes in policy or what kind of things did you guys learn because of this operation to make sure that you didn't repeat these uh, issues and future things? Well, I don't think it was something we um, thought changed after the fact. Before this, um, as Murphy said, we used to have operational plans and I mean, everything was written down in detail and you had your supervisor sign off on it. This particular deal where I was injured, uh, like I said, the, on Thursday, we pretty much had it together and it didn't go. And then on Friday, I mean, it was just go for it. You know, there was, I, I mean, there was an ops plan, but you were able, we learned how to do those as quickly as possible and get them signed off on. Um, but I think we learned mainly to s slow down. It's a damn drug trafficker. Uh, it's not worth getting killed over. You know, if, if if the deal doesn't go today, there's always tomorrow. Uh, you don't have to, you know, force it and make it go. Yeah, so you're thinking probably with this one, in hindsight, it would have been better just to say, look, we can't meet right now. You know, you got to give us a couple hours. We'll tell you when. Or would there was there anything differently you could have done that day? Because those guys are calling up, like I said, the CI is wanting to get paid, you know, trying to make money, and they're trying to make the deal happen. Um, you know what? What? What do you? What? What comes out of that? And uh, it, like you say, what was the go fever? Why? Why did you guys have go fever? Why was there an immediate need to say no? We got to do this because he calls. It's got to happen in thirty minutes. Well, I, th I think the agent was pushing the informant, or the informant was pushing the agent. You know, one one way or the other, we don't know for sure. But uh, it's just, like I said, it was something where you can slow down. There's enough drug traffickers out there for everybody to arrest. Uh, you don't have to just jump on this because it's there at a the certain time. Yeah, I, I think that's, and the other thing, too, is you always hear about it. It's like, we got to do this now. My question was, why? Why do we have to do this now? Like you say, you could I think younger agents also feel like they have to prove themselves. So a lot of times they will take shortcuts and do all kinds of stuff, and that's why you need good supervision uh, to pull the reins back when they need to be pulled back. 
Well, and like you say, you know, you could set up a 17 kilo or 20 kilo dope deal any day of the week. I mean, there's nothing, there's really nothing special about this. They weren't a high value target. They weren't one of your targeted organizations. It was just right. Another deal, another day at the office, right? Yeah, pretty much. You know, there wow. was, there was another deal. And I don't know that we covered this story, Morgan, uh, but uh, Kevin and I were, we were getting to the point where we were starting to work together and didn't need a senior agent with us all the time. And an informant came up and told us about uh, these bad guys who, you know, were, were selling dope and looking for plane transportation. And so we decided we wanted to meet them. And uh, fortunately for Kevin and I, we went to my first DEA partner was a guy named Gene Frankar. We ran the whole thing by Gino said, hey, you know, here's what we're being told. We want to pursue this case. And thankfully, we were smart enough to do that instead of just doing it on our own because Gene said, well, you know, okay, it sounds like there's potential here, but it also sounds like uh, this might be cop on cop. This could be a blue on blue type situation. And so he said, you know, just keep that in mind when you go out there and just, you know, keep your wits about you. So we go set up at that Denny's restaurant on 36th Street there in Miami, close to the Miami airport. And I'm sitting in the parking lot across the street, you know, and you get there early because you're doing, you want to do counter surveillance to see if anybody else, what's going on, you know. And I park in a parking lot and everybody's got blacked out windows. And I pull into a parking place next to a pickup truck that's got blacked out windows. And so I've got the eyeball on the door. We call it having the, the eyeball. So I'm watching the front door of Denny's so I can call it out. Well, after I'm sitting there like 20 minutes, all of a sudden this truck starts and backs out and then pulls over and pulls in beside me and blocks my view. And I thought, well, you son of a gun, you know, what the hell's going on here? And we think about it, and the more I'm thinking about it, it's like, uh, you know what, Gino was right. So I call everybody, we call a meeting like a block away, we all drive off, we put our vests on and our ray jackets and our gun belts, and we come back on with all of our police ID on, we pull up to this pickup truck and whoever, I don't know if it was me or Kevin or whoever, flips his blue lights on so they know it's police. Turns out it was Hialeah PD. They were outside their jurisdiction. They had no jurisdiction over there. But that was who our bad guys was going to be, was another police officer. So um, where Kevin's saying, you know, he was saying the strength of having a good supervisor to tell you, you don't have to go do the deal. Uh, we were just very fortunate that day that we listened to Gene. We, you know, we had the foresight to go talk to Gene and get his opinion because he was extremely intelligent and ex extremely experienced and probably saved a blue-on-blue -blue shooting that day. Wow, and, and those are unfortunate. Those have happened out in our area, Steve. I know up here in Montgomery County or Prince George's, there's been a couple of situations where you've had things going on and a undercover or plainclothes police officer has been shot, mm -hmm. you know, by his own folks. And it, it just it's just extremely... Um, it's unfortunate and it's sad, and you're right. We go to great lengths to make sure that those things don't happen. Kevin, you know, we're kind of winding things down, but, you know, in spite of everything that happened, when you look back on your time, you were talking about there was one thing that you were just, you look back and you say, the one thing, one of the things I was really proud of, and you called it Operation Vest Track. Tell people what that is. Yeah, that was a, a joint investigation with Murphy and I were able to uh, hook up with a couple of FBI agents. At the time, FBI and DEA didn't get along, but Murph and I being rednecks and good old boys, we were able to strike up <laughs> a relationship with a couple of FBI agents, and we were all kind of from the same mold where we didn't give a damn who got credit for taking people down. 
Um, we just wanted to put the bad guys away. So we initiated this case called Operation Vest Track, where we would. And put what did Vest stand for? Vessel tracking, Vest Track, because there was mainly boat smuggling. So we would put um, secretly put satellite trackers on boats that we were told from informants or you know whoever that were involved in in cocaine smuggling through the Caribbean. So we started this with the FBI. They set up an undercover operation that was right next door. That was targeting a guy named Luis Miguel Perez, who was uh, AKA the Indian. He was supposedly the biggest Marine smuggler in Miami at the time. Um, there was a pilot that we had arrested that was related to the case, and he given us information that this guy had brought in 52 loads of uh, cocaine of like three or 400 kilos or more uh, for the last numerous number of years. Um, so I was bound and determined to get him. And uh, we ended up, it took four years. Um, we were able to take, we got an undercover agent involved. We got uh, informants involved. One informant um, rented an offload house. Another informant was the boat captain that they put on the boat to go down by Mexico and pick up the load. Turns out the load was 910 kilos of cocaine. Oh, jeez. Um, it took and I mean, we seized his house, which was probably about two million dollar house. We seized I don't know how many boats he had to go fast. He had several yachts that had um, concealed compartments in them where he would send them down off the coast of Colombia or he would hook up with them somewhere over by Mexico, transfer the dope, and they'd put them in these concealed compartments and bring them into the country and then disperse them. Um, it turns out that case took four years. I was I had so many electronics on the guy. I had, uh, like I said, sat, sat tracks on a bunch of his boats. I had uh, was on his fax machine. We were up on a Title III telephone intercept. Um, I had pole cameras on his house and on his business. I mean, the guy glowed. I had so many electronics around him. <laughs> Which, which is ironic because it took us a half hour to get you set up for this. So with all this technology, you're going, what do I plug in and where? How do I do this? But we have tech agents for yes, that. We <laughs> yes, we do. Which I, I was your I, tech agent bitch for about 30 minutes, but we got you up and running. But anyway, we ended up, uh, we took the whole operation down. We ended up um, arresting like 85 people, seizing about 6,000 pounds of cocaine. Um, like I said, seizing a bunch of assets. Um, so it was a very successful case. The best part about it was that we were able to work with the FBI, and I'm still friends with those people or those agents uh, and talk to them occasionally. You know, you said 6,000 pounds of Coke, you know, so, you know, when you when you think of a pound or a kilo is 2.2 pounds, so you're, um, you know, I was just calculating the street, just the wholesale value of that. That was almost $100 million worth of Coke. I mean, what could you have retailed that much Coke for? I mean, if, if you buy a kilo for 35000 ultimately how much money do you make off of a kilo, you think? Oh, geez, that'd be hard to, hard to figure out because you'd have to 
Well, you know break what? Break it down to street level, you know. We break it all the way down to that. It's hard to tell. Go ahead, Murph. Yeah, so you figure, and this is an easy way. First of all, it depends on how many times they step on it or they cut that cocaine, right. the purity level down. But let's say they step on it four times, and that would be conservative. So your purity level just drops from 100% or, or say, 95% down to about 24%. And they're going to cut it a lot more than that as it continues to go out. But then, so now you got four times the cocaine, and they sell it in gram quantities on the street at roughly $100 a gram. Well, there's 1,000 grams in a kilo times 6,000. Well, let's see, 6,000 pounds would be... You don't got enough fingers for that. We'll need a calculator, Murph. <laughs> oh, I couldn't even take my shoes off and use my toes on this one. <laughs> But you know what? The reason I'm saying that is just to put it in perspective for people. I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, not of only of property, but of cocaine, right. uh, 85 people taken out. And the most amazing thing out of this, like you say, is the FBI and the DEA work together. You know, unfortunately, and it's the same thing with state and local police, you know, or other stuff, you know, between the states and the feds, too. There's sometimes there's this unnecessary, unhealthy competition. And the best times I had is working either with ATF or DEA or FBI. We'd all, all of us street operators, you know, we just, like you say, Kevin, you just want to go out. I want the trophy picture. You do it for the trophy picture. Hey, here's the Coke we seized. Here's the money we seized. Here's the bad guys we put in jail. You didn't care who got the credit. It's only, unfortunately, you get up to the political level or, you know, a different structure. They get concerned about who gets the credit for it. Yeah. But, but that, that the fact that you guys put that together during that time, that was a testament to, to your guys' ability to work together. And I think like us all being Midwest boys, I'm from the Kansas, you know, I, I think it's the old Midwest thing, you know, the redneck stuff. You know, we just we just all want to work together and get along. Why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just get along? So, hey, how did you end out your career with DA? Let's close up with that. What did you do? So you're uh, you finally come back to work. You're working these things. What, you know, kind of tell us about your progression through DEA up until retirement. Um, after, uh, Hurricane Andrew, um, which pretty much wiped out <laughs> South Florida, um, I had my wife and I at the time had my daughter and... Is this I wife mean, number three or four? Number three. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just helping the folks at home keep track. Anyway, it was pretty devastating down there and I decided I wanted to get my daughter out of that atmosphere. There was a lot of other unsavory folks that were coming up to Broward County from Miami. Uh, and I just thought I didn't want to race her down there in that. So I put in, I, I went to special operations up in uh, Virginia for DEA. I was there for a couple of years and then I got promoted to the resident agent in charge of Macon, Georgia. I was there almost five years. And then um, I had to go back to headquarters as a supervisor and do three years, which is something that's pretty mandatory with DEA. Um, and after that, I was able to get transferred. I, want, I wanted to go back to Florida, but just further north. So I transferred to um, Jacksonville, Florida, and that's where I finished out my career. Um, af after that, um, I started a private investigative business after I retired. I was just playing too much golf. I, I had to do something a little different. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what kind of cases did you handle? Actually, they were more insurance, uh, workman's comp type stuff, and it was a pain in the ass dealing with these insurance companies. They want want you to promise the world to them, and they don't want to do anything for you at all. So I finally, after five years, got tired of that. 
and uh, shut that down. And at that point in time, my son lived with his mother down in uh, Sarasota, Florida. So I wanted to be closer to him. And my daughter had graduated. She's a nurse and lives up in Lakeland. So it was mainly to get closer to my kids so I could see them on a more regular basis. I now have two grandbabies. Oh, congrats, man. Thank you. So when you were in Virginia, where did you live? Uh, the first time I lived in Dumfries when I was in special operations, which was... Um, that I-95 cluster down there, man. It, it, exactly. And then the last time when I was there, when I was at headquarters, I went to uh, Ash. Ashburn, Virginia. Guess where? Well, that's Steve and I are both in Ashburn. We're about, uh, you know, two miles from each other here. All right. Well, he was, Steve, you live in the same house? We're two, he... two doors down from where we lived the first time, believe it or not. Same street. Oh, really? <laughs> so where, where did you live at in Ashburn? Do you remember? Uh, behind the, um, God, what's the name of the grocery store? The Giant? Giant. The Giant. He's yeah, on, he's on the Wayside Circle. Oh, okay. You know, the funny thing is my workout buddy now that I've been working out with for years every morning is a retired Marine that lived two doors down from Kevin. So Brad, <laughs> Brad and I are still working out together. Wow. Yeah, th there's the farms, you know, there's the village, and then there's uh, – I, the, I live in the slums of Ashford. We have no tennis court or pool or nothing. We're just a little small yeah. HOA here. <laughs> there's no slums in this neighborhood, <laughs> in this community. That's that's why they call it cash burn, man. You can That's burn right. through a lot of cash down here. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So, hey, well, Kevin, when you look back on your career now, um, you know, what was the best job you had at DEA? Oh, geez. I liked, uh, I liked just being the street agent, like a third level third, GS-13. Um, everybody always says, well, you got to get promoted and become a 14, and I think, Things went downhill at 14, at the GS 14. But, and actually, I when I was at headquarters, I was offered a 15 two different times. And I knew when I got out of headquarters and went back out into the field that uh, I wouldn't be, I'd be sitting behind a desk most of the time. And I didn't want that. So I refused the fifth GS 15s. Um, and state of 14. So that way I, had the best of both worlds. I could be the agent, but I could also be in charge at the same time. So, and I, I enjoyed working with new young agents and teaching them the ropes. Wow. Well, look, man, your story has been, um, we've all known people who've been through things. We've all known people who have, uh, uh, you know, been in shootings or, you know, uh, but just to, just to talk about your story and just your mindset about how you just, you know, you knew you were injured, but you were concerned about the informant. You're you're worried about the security of the rest of the house. You know, you're doing those things. Uh, you know, it just you sometimes you can't teach those things. They have to be you know innate. Like you said, maybe part of it was the Marine Corps training, but the fact that you're here today is a living testament to this. You know, the strength of will and your character. And uh, man, this has just been humbling just to listen to your story about what you went through. And um, hopefully, the folks that are listening out there will understand that. Doing police work, doing law enforcement, whether at the federal, state, or local level, it's pretty much a thankless job. And not very many people wake up that morning thinking, hey, today's the day I'm going to get shot. Right. Especially nowadays with the uh, the current situation with the police. and Yeah. It'd be tough to be out there now. So, Steve, how was it having your old partner on here again, going walking through this? 
You know, it's always fun to catch up, and it's it's funny. Uh, you know, I was a cop when I met Connie, so I've never really done anything else. Uh, and she knows how we are as law enforcement and the camaraderie, but the the close knit fellowship that goes along, and how we tend to exclude non-law enforcement from our inner circles and so forth. But she's always found it funny that, you know, Kevin and I will go for years and not talk to each other. And then when we talk to each other, it's like we were together yesterday. She's never really understood. It's like, well, what's Kevin been doing? You know, you haven't talked to him in five years. You know, what's he doing? How many how many wives does he have now? What is he working? <laughs> this kind of thing. And, and I'm like, I don't know. I didn't ask him. But, well, you haven't talked to him in five years. What would y'all talk about? Oh, you know, whatever he's doing today. I don't know. It's just she doesn't understand how you can just maintain <laughs> that that close relationship and not talk to each other on a regular basis like normal people do, I guess. You know, so it's uh, I will say is uh, it's kind of funny because we had a friend here. Um, Jeff Regal is a professional audio video guy. And as we were recording today's uh, interview, he was here in my house. I'm getting down in my little man cave, taking photographs of everything. And when we started getting into the shooting story, I completely forgot he was here. And he was he was all around my little area right here. He's had multiple cameras going at the same time, and uh, just reliving that with Kevin. That's the first time we've done it, uh, maybe ever. And it's uh, you know I, I felt myself getting amped up talking about the story again, getting antsy sitting here in my chair and. Caught myself shaking a little bit and like I'm doing now. So uh, uh, it was, it's cool to talk to Kevin about it and hear his side of it. I don't know that we've ever really gone into depth like this, but it's also very cool to be sitting here and having him after what he went through on our yeah. little podcast here that he's still alive and, and, you know, has been motivational throughout a lot of people's career because of what he went through. Uh, received the, the Purple Heart from DEA down the road after shooting once they realize you know we're getting so many people injured we need to recognize their sacrifices so uh i know it sounds corny as hell to say it but you know it's great to have you on here kevin and it's an honor to have you on here too because all the shit you went through you deserved a whole lot more than what you got well i appreciate you guys having me on i enjoyed it well you know what i'll give you i'll make sure steve sends you a six pack all right he'll <laughs> deliver on this one what's your favorite beer bud light uh... Bud yeah. Light. <laughs> Actually, how about how about Newcastle? Newcastle, that's, Newcastle, that's, that's better. I can deal with. It. I can't. I'm sorry. I can't send Bud Light. I'm sorry. It's just, <laughs> I can't do that. Hey, okay. We we were fancy drinkers back then. Yeah, I remember too. Tomato beer and stuff. You know, just you did everything you could to make it stretch. But <laughs> I, my tastes have changed though. So, but I can't do Bud Light. I'm sorry. Not 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 against nothing against them. Well, hey, look, Kevin, it's been great. Thank you for doing this. Um, and again, we appreciate your service. This is me. Folks can't see it, but this is me saluting you. Marine, Semper Fi. And thank you for playing Game of Crimes. Well, guys, like Steve said, man, if you, you know, sit down, shut up, strap in and hold on. That was a, I'm telling you, Steve. That that was a hell of a ride, even for all of us who've been through this kind of stuff. But to listen to what happened that day and to see, you know, your informant that you work with, somebody who made a lot of cases, get shot in the throat like that, die right in front of you. I mean, you showed me the picture of that 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 was uh, one bloody scene.
It was. And you know what we've, we kind of learned throughout that it seems like the smaller the drug trafficker, the more potential there is for violence, believe it or not. You know, we seized hundreds and hundreds of kilos and never had issues with anybody. But here we're going to do a 17 kilo knockoff there in Miami and the guy, both guys show up with weapons and we end up with uh, a murder and a, and a injured agent. So it's, uh, I tell you, I have to take a deep breath after listening to that episode. And the thing I like about Kevin, though, is you never heard him bitch. He never complained about being shot. No, I mean, he wasn't happy about it. None of us were, well, but. Well, what the, I think the worst part was trying to keep the girlfriends apart at the <laughs> hospital room. <laughs> oh, there's more stories I can tell you about that, too, but it's probably in the right place for yeah, that. Oh, probably. Hey, but the other thing, too, we've got, we just, I just got the book. So there's some, it's down the road, not sure when, but it's Luis Navia. And we were just talking about pure narco, right? Yep. You speaking to that, here's a guy who, when he was caught, had 9,000 kilos of cocaine. And what his policy was, he never carried a weapon. Yep. For 25 yeah, just years. Just to your point. For 25, 25 years. years. Right. Yep. So we'll, we'll get into that more. Anyway, so we hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did, go to Apple Podcasts, hit that five stars. It's magic. We don't know how it works, but it works and it really helps us. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We're going to be constantly updating it. We'll add merch, Patreon, you know, maybe some live shows. We've had, actually had some chatter on Facebook and Twitter about that. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes on Facebook, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Instagram. Again, PayPal, use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast.com at gmail.com or PayPal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to help support us. Now, before we close out, let's just tease next week's episode because I think this one's good. This is about an ass, a real ass. No, I mean, it's about a mule, the mule. <laughs> <laughs> We already got the ass on the show here. Let's go. Oh, uh, uh, we got we got the the DEA agent who was the movie was made about and Leo Sharp uh, Clint Eastwood made a movie called The Mule mm-hmm. about the oldest drug trafficker for the Sinaloa cartel. That's El Chapo. Which, by the way, we got an episode on El Chapo coming up uh, with Abe and Paul. Uh, I think episode nine or eight and nine. Yeah. So yeah, so that that'll be cool. But th- this this one's really good. This one is. Just amazing how the case came about and then how it turned into a movie. This was one of those, you, you'll hear about it, but it didn't turn into a movie the regular way it does. So, uh, you know, we want to say, but we got that contact through you too. So that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, a lot of these cases turn into movies. Like uh, we got Zach coming up with The Merchant of Death, Victor Boo. You've got Leo Sharp, you know, The Mule. So... A lot of Hollywood shit in this stuff we're doing, pal. It is. And, you know, I, honestly, I did not know that The Mule was based on a DEA story until we got to doing our research and found out that, you know, Jeff is the, the case agent. And he's still on the job. So we had to get permission from DEA headquarters to do this interview. But it's uh, it's, it's pretty cool. It's uh, Jeff's a, a soft-spoken, nice guy, but he's got a great story to tell. He's very humble in his message. He is. And he's a good Midwest boy like me. So... Don't forget that, Murph. See, I I hesitate to say anything because I don't want to insult all the people from Kansas. Well, you can't. You can't just. You can't just say a thing with more than two syllables. It ain't going to work. All right. Well, hey, folks. Everybody, stay tuned. We appreciate you again. Head on over. Hit those five stars. We appreciate everything you do for us. Until then, let's get ready to play the biggest game of all: the game of crimes. 